Good morning. I haven't heard the words uh, humdinger in a really long time. <laughs> Much less used in a complete sentence like that, so very nice. Um, so I guess I am David Kamen, and um, I'm uh, at Hewitt as the global real estate leader. It's a really huge title, really doesn't mean that much. Um, I work with Terry Hamill uh, in the back, who's just about to get her breakfast right now. Um, so Todd and I have uh, been teaching this course in a number of different uh, locations and uh, functions, and it looks different every time we do it because Todd keeps changing it around. For probably, what, you know, I've been doing this for five years or so. And Todd actually wrote this course, so he's very intimate with it. Um, the nice thing about it, though, is that as we continue to go through these, uh, through the course throughout the years, things always change. And so it's, whether it's the, um, the people in the class that change, the issues that change, the things that we're dealing with that change, even though some of the stuff in the book may look a little um, um, not updated, uh, the reality of it is is that the, the core of it stays the same, but the actual events that we go through change all the time. So um, uh, Todd brings a very practical uh, experience to the course from the, uh, from the brokerage side and, and working with uh, clients through a number of these different situations that we, ha that we have and we'll be talking about for the next four hours. And I've um, had the pleasure of experiencing it really from both sides. So I started um, a lot of doing a lot of this work when I was at Ernst & Young. Um, after I went, was at ENY, was at Aon, um, and I just left there. It'll be almost a year uh, at the end of October. It will, it will be a year at the end of October. So I've been at Hewitt for about a year, um, and uh, Hewitt is a, I don't know, is everyone here from the area? No one else? This is so nice, because every time I do this when I'm in another state and I talk about Hewitt, they say Hewitt Packard. And so then I have to go through this whole long explanation of what Hewitt is. Uh, but Hewitt is really a um, two companies in one, which is a consulting and an outsourcing company. Uh, really, the company is literally divided into two entities, um, very different cultures, very different people, very different requirements and needs. And the company went public about five years ago. Um, and as a result of going public, uh, we're dealing now, five years later, with a lot of the issues that really should have been dealt with five, six years ago. Um, so which makes Terry's and my job very exciting. Um, it's uh, aggravating, it's fun, um, but at the end of the day, because of the structure that the company's put in place, a lot of the stuff that we're talking about, that we're going to be talking about for the next half a day, uh, are things that we actually do. So the stuff when we talk about the, on the acquisition side and the disposition side and dealing with all the um, accounting treatments and, and the uh, policies and rules that we have to follow, this is stuff that we do every day. And we have to be very cognizant of how we do it, because if we do something wrong, it could have serious uh, repercussions to the company. So a lot, um, although I haven't heard much of it recently, but um, probably as recent as about six months ago, you hear of these companies that are continually having to restate earnings, um, have other problems all related to accounting, and a lot of them have to do with leases. And it's, it's actually surprisingly simple to get really screwed up doing what we do on a day-to-day -day basis. So I'm, I'm never um, surprised on what I see. And I think, uh, again, the work that Terry and I are doing uh, now actively in the marketplace has a lot of relevance to this. So uh, I'm going to stop babbling now. Um, but if we can just go around the room really quickly and just introduce ourselves. I don't want to go, we, usually when Todd and I and a few others do this whole thing, we get into this whole long, you know, what's your favorite movie? What's your favorite color? What's your, uh, I don't want to do that. Not that if you want to tell us your favorite movie, that's fine. But, uh, I don't really care. So if we just go through the room, <laughs> just introduce ourselves. And when you, if you could stand up and just say 
who you work for, how long you've been there, and who do you report to? And I'm Todd Anderson. Uh, I'm with CB Richard Ellis. Uh, I office in Los Angeles. Uh, I have uh, dual responsibilities at CB. I'm in the Global Corporate Services Group, um, which, which I've moved to that side of the business after a couple of decades in brokerage. Um, but I have responsibility for business development, which is really sort of a misnomer as we work with clients to understand what services we can provide because it's different for every client and, and I focus on those based headquartered in the western United States um, that we work with on a national or global basis. And the other hat that I wear is I'm uh, in the CB terminology the alliance director with the responsibility for managing the account team and the strategy for uh, the Boeing company's global real estate portfolio. So I've sort of got feet in, in both camps on the corporate services side. Um, as David had mentioned, um, we've been doing this course uh, for a number of years together. Uh, this course is, is actually the, the longest running continuous curriculum course offered at Cornet. It was, it was, uh, we had done this for many years at NACOR prior to that. And as David said, you know, many of the accounting principles uh, haven't changed. It's the application of them that's changed, the focus on them that has changed. And um, a lot of this has to do with just the increasing sophistication that we're all going through in business in general across the board, uh, the global nature of the business that so many of us are involved with, and then how do you reconcile you know, your real estate as well as your business practices from different countries around the world and then, of course, it got a, a real jolt of steroids when Sarbanes-Oxley, you know, came into effect, which is all about, and we'll touch on that at the end a little bit, uh, but all about financial transparency, you know, and, and uh, compliance and accountability and, and the control functions within your organization. Um, David had alluded to the fact that for many companies, real estate, it, it, just as you had indicated, can oftentimes be overlooked, you know, as just a tool to accommodate the employees or the equipment of a company. And yet the impact of real estate to an organization is significant and substantial because it's a major commitment of financial resources and capital. And a lot of the, the commitment is not just, not just the dollars on the income statement or the do dollars on the balance sheet, but, but it's, it's the, the, the term commitment, the duration of those dollars. Um, when, companies, when companies run into financial difficulties or they miss their earnings or revenues down for some reason, one of the knee-jerk reactions often is to lay off employees because most employees are really working on a company on an at-will basis, which is basically a 30-day contract. And for large companies, some of those of you sitting in the room, that could be thousands of people, if not tens of thousands of people at a time. But for, also for most of those employees of your companies, most of them are not working outside. So when, when a layoff occurs with people that perhaps a 30-day notice, generally you can't call the landlord and say, hey, we're going to be out in 30 days. You know, real estate continues to, to linger on. And it's that component 
that, that really, really gets lost when you look at the real estate impact on an organization. Um, as Rick had mentioned, uh, this program is a, an abridged version of the MCR course. For those of you, how many people in here have an MCR or are taking MCR courses? Um, if, if for those that, that are in MCR already, you've taken this course, and those going through it, you're going to get to it sooner or later. It's one of the required courses for the program. Um, and four hours is a good segment of time to give you a flavor of what the course is. The two-day course goes through many more types of real estate transactions than the two that we're going to focus on today, which is really an a lease acquisition and a purchase acquisition. Um, it, it goes into a lot more detail with using live examples of, of the companies that represent the attendees you know, of the course at any given time. We have a, a, a good chunk of the course that's, that uh, is internet-based because this, is, this material is all real and dynamic and you can pull that information up on any one of your companies and, and for publicly traded companies it's easily accessible, the information on the internet. Um, a lot of people feel that, uh, th that amongst the, the, the people represented in this room, that real estate is really immaterial. It, it doesn't move the needle. It's, you know, the, the corporation's focus, as it should be, is on the product that they produce. Um, and, and yet, real estate can have an impact. And, and after SOX was introduced, and companies started to go through more rigorous um, audit processes. In fact, a whole separate audit process for SOX compliance. Um, in the first year of reviewing those audits, which was 2005, okay, there were over 300 publicly traded companies that had to restate at least one year's earnings based solely on real, real estate accounting. Okay? And one of the, one of the largest, uh, just, to, just to pick on familiar names, was Singular. And uh, Singular had to restate earnings from 2000 to 2004, taking an aggregate pre-tax charge of $171 million to reflect a change in its accounting for operating leases. Okay? And in simple terms, the change that they were reflecting, that they had to take a write-down of $171 million for, is they weren't straight-lining rents. It wasn't that they missed leases and they didn't include them, or they miscategorized things. They just didn't straight-line rents. I mean, that's accounting 101. Now, this, this course is not about accounting, and it's not about the numbers. This course is really about as real estate professionals, how do we communicate the impact of real estate you know, to an executive level at our company? How do we communicate the, the, the value that, that we're obligated to or the value that we can harvest out of a real estate portfolio? But to do that, you have to change the, the language that you communicate to them with. Because I can guarantee you there's no executive at your company, and certainly not in the finance department, that, that cares about what market conditions are. You know, that doesn't matter to them. And yet at the core of what we do, you know, that's what drives you know, a lot of us in, in 
the way we look at real estate. Is the market up? Is the market down? What's the pr prospect for the market? The length of the term? When do you buy? When do you sell? Everything else. But at, it, from a company perspective, at an executive level, that doesn't matter. And that's what we try to communicate in this course, and that's what we'll try and communicate in, in this morning session. But to do that, because many people in, that come to real estate come from backgrounds that aren't necessarily financial. They could come from architectural backgrounds. They could come from a legal background. They could come from a construction background. You know, so finance isn't isn't just you can't assume everybody has a finance background, and so we're going to go through some fundamentals in this course. Uh, we're going to we're going to work through some income statements and balance sheets because it's important for you to understand where that real estate is reflected on your corporate financial statements, and we're going to talk about key performance measures. We're going to talk about just a few very high-level generic that apply to all companies. But we're also going to talk about how you can get indicators at your company about what those important drivers are, where your company's focus is. Okay? And so there's two things that we would like everybody to leave this morning with. Uh, a, a very basic and fundamental understanding of. The first is on and off balance sheet transactions. Okay? Um, this is important for anybody in real estate to understand. As many of you know, uh, Enra, um, uh, SOX is really the, the, igniter, the igniter, the catalyst for, for SOX was, was Enron. And, and specifically at Enron, it was the off-balance sheet transactions, you know, that they had. And many people in Enron, as you know, have been, have been uh, dragged through the court system for years. Um, as a result of that, it, it destroyed the, the you know, obviously the, the company went bankrupt, the pension plan went down the tube and everything else. And it was, you know, it, quite frankly, it was all the result of these off-balance sheet transactions, you know. And not to embarrass anybody in the room, but has anybody here been involved in an off-balance sheet transaction? A couple people. Okay. Have you been indicted for that, Rick? Or no? Has anybody? Has they, okay. Let, let me flip around to a real estate standpoint. Has any? How many people in here have done like a five-year office lease? Okay. Well, we should probably call the authorities. <laughs> Because all of you have done off-balance sheet transactions, okay? Um, real estate is, there, there's more off-balance sheet transactions in the real estate department than any place else in the corporation. Because every operating lease that you do is an off-balance sheet transaction. So everybody's going to leave with a very good understanding of that today. The other, the other thing that we want everybody to leave with is probably what, what I refer to as the, the silver bullet question. You know, when you're looking at your real estate department and saying, what impact is my department having on the corporation, the question that you want to ask is, is your company income statement driven or is it balance sheet driven? And we're going to walk through that a little bit this morning because it's often very easy to understand or to learn whether your company is and can dramatically affect the, the strategic direction your company's going with regard to how they're handling real estate, okay? And it can change. And we'll show you that toward the end of this presentation today, you know, with, with just real actual materials of, of a company that, 
has gone from one side to the other and it can go back and forth. And you know what, your real estate can change back and forth with it as well. You can lease real estate today and buy it tomorrow and do a sale lease back and bring it back the, the other way. But the thing is, if you're gonna try to communicate how real estate can be you know, a productive component to your, uh, to your company, you gotta understand this. This is the language you gotta at least be thinking in, okay? And then there's performance measures that companies are measured by, which is like an alphabet soup of anachronisms. And to many of you, many of these anachronisms up here would be very familiar, okay? And as companies get more sophisticated, they start to tweak and define, and all of a sudden you talk about EVA, economic value added models, or economic profit models. And, and they're, they're, they're real fundamental measurements that you may have heard in some of your companies, but other things like EPS, earnings per share, you know, everybody has a familiarity with. Because everybody that owns stock, and you check your stock price, you know, you, you generally check, that's oftentimes very closely related to how your earnings, you know, are coming out. And earnings per share is just that earnings divided by the number of shareholders, okay? Your company reports it quarterly. If you miss your earnings, your stock can take a big hit, you know? And, and when I say miss your earnings, I didn't just say, say, you know, negatively. Your stock can take a hit if you miss your earnings on a very positive basis as well, okay? But really what we're getting to in this course is, and, and even in this morning session, is what's the bottom line? In accounting, that has, a very, that has a very specific reference to a very specific financial statement, okay? But it also is a cliche and has a generic connotation to it, like Cadillac and Kleenex and some of the other things. Like, what, what's the most important thing about real estate in your corporation? And that's what, and that's what we're going to try to, at least in, a, in an abridged version, uh, give, you, give you an idea of through this course this morning. So this is the agenda that we have. Um, what we're going to do is, is just because um, we know from doing this for years that the reality is probably at least half the people in the room haven't had a lot of finance or perhaps formal finance training in their career. So we're going we're gonna to go through some fundamentals just to kind of get everybody, level set the, the playing field for everybody this morning. And um, for those of you that have a strong finance background, bear with us you know, as we kind of get everybody else on the same page. Then we're going to specifically look at the income statement and balance sheets for an operating lease and a property purchase. We'll take a, a little break if you need to check your emails or return a few calls or get a cup of, co get a cup of coffee whenever you want. You won't interrupt us. Um, a lot of people just take naps, you know, a little bit later in the morning anyway. <laughs> yeah. After the, after the break, you know, we sort of pick up the pace a little bit and talk about some of those, just those basic financial ratios. Um, we, we talk about a capital lease and, and a sublease, and, and in that we, we, we focus on FAS 13, which once you get past on and off balance sheet and income statement or balance sheet driven, FAS 13 is really what everybody in the room has got to know, and we've got information in, in your book for reference purposes. Um, then, we'll, then we'll come back and start to summarize what we've talked about all up here and, and take, a look at, take a look at at least one example of um, the implications to the income statement and balance sheet, you know, on a, on a practical basis. And then um, giving, you know, however much time we have left at the end, we'll talk about some compliance issues, but this can, 
can easily go hours and hours. So we're going to, the information's in the book, and we're going to touch on some things that if you want, if you want a, a more depth, in-depth understanding, take the two-day course. Back to you. By the way, how cool it was that he was actually, you didn't even see him touch this, did you? Everything just floats through. He's a master <laughs> of the PowerPoint. Um, just a couple things I just wanted to start with. Um, so Todd talked a lot about communication. And in reality, um, our jobs, whether it's on the um, corporate side or working for a corporation from the service side, all, our job is to communicate. Okay? So we don't have anything else to present other than data. Right? So I was just thinking about this when Todd was talking. And I said I've been at Hewitt. By the way, um, I'll be at Hewitt. Uh, next week will be my one-year anniversary, just in case anyone in the room really cares. Well, we should have a party. No, I'm not getting any response from her. Um, <laughs> anyway, so uh, one of the first things that I wanted to do when I got there was really understand the company and understand what the real estate portfolio looked like. So, um, you know, it's not too typical or it's not too atypical when you find a company in a decentralized model that has real estates in all pockets of the world, um, which we did, um, and we still do. But... Um, the interesting thing about the company that I came to versus the company that I came from, I came from Aon, which is about a $13 billion company, almost $14 billion. Hewitt's about a $4 billion company. One of the reasons that it was um, so opportunistic was, the, was a, the, the challenge to have a real significant impact, as Todd was talking about, on uh, our stock price, um, as well as just on the company itself. So for our, in our business, the real estate assets that we have are very close to number three on the on our um, uh, the largest expense we have is clearly our labor uh, then it's our IT but real estate is not that far below it and um, with the, the interesting piece when Todd talked about is it a um, is it significant right and, and the real estate holdings being the third largest expense well the reality of it is is that a significant portion of our leases probably close to 65% expire after four years from now Okay? And the majority of them expire like way after four years from now. Okay? So the reality of it is, for us to make a change uh, in the real estate, in the spend, we have to do something pretty aggressive. Okay? So we can't wait for the leases to expire and then maybe find cheaper or less space, right? because at the end of the day, it's really just about rate and volume. Right? So we have to do something that's much more proactive and, and quite honestly, a little more painful. So um, I had the pleasure of being misquoted last week in the Chicago Tribune on an article that was talking about some vacant space that we have. Okay? So just one thing, you know, another takeaway from this class, never talk to a reporter, ever. Okay? <laughs> even if they call you and you pick up the phone by accident and they say they're a reporter with the Tribune and they ask you what your title is, don't even tell them. Okay? Anyway. Um, but, but again, so what we do is really impactful and really meaningful because the fact that we're subleasing space now in the Chicago area has a significant impact um, on our earnings release. Okay, so one of the things that we obviously didn't want to talk about is exactly what we're doing because when we do have our earnings release and when we, when we have our announcement in a couple weeks, real estate is going to be mentioned. When we did our, um, uh, our, our first restructuring announcement on, and sent out a, a press release on July 13th, just from that press release and all it was focusing on was the real estate, our stock went up 8% that day. That's pretty cool. I mean, the fact that you know, Terry and I can have an 8% impact on our share price. It's pretty neat. And we didn't even do anything, right? It was just an announcement about what we were going to do. 
okay? So, well, I mean, I didn't, you did a lot. I didn't do anything. Um, so, so again, it, you know, it is impactful. It is meaningful. But again, when you look at all these expenses lined up on a bar graph, the reality of it is how much of the real estate expense is something that you can actually work on that year or that year plus the year after. So when we talked about the communication, one of the things that we have to do is condition our management to the understanding that, yes, just because real estate, there's so much real estate and it's such a huge cost, you can't you know, hack 30% of it. You can't fire 30% of the people. You can't get rid of 30% of the buildings in one year and have a significant reduction. You can't throw away a bunch of obsolete IT equipment and have a significant reduction or get rid of a lot of um, IT people. It's not that easy. So, our job actually is really difficult, and what makes it more difficult is our inability to communicate to senior management. Okay? So Todd hit on it before. When we're talking to CFOs or treasurers or accounting people, we tend to do two things. We tend to talk about our real estate in terms of the real estate that we talk about every single day, square footage, market conditions, one-off deals, whatever it may be. It goes right over their heads. Okay? So when we, who, who um, at the bank? What is your portfolio like? De describe the, your portfolio. About 9 million square feet of space. Um, most, I would say, it's probably relatively new to the bank still. Remember, it's about 60% lease. Okay. Okay, how about AT&T? Who's in AT&T? Just make it up, nobody knows. <laughs> Just say 30 billion. <laughs> That, that, yeah, the new AT&T. Uh, AT okay. Who else? What was another big company in here? HS HSBC. Um, make it up. Make it up. It's uh, between office space and retail, about six and a half million. Okay. All right. So what we just described, we just described a real estate portfolio. Okay. And everyone in this room has an understanding of what it is. But if you're talking to the CFO of your company who has no context whatsoever what 9 million square feet looks like, it means nothing. Okay? And when you talk about lease versus own, what does that mean? Right? So if you, do, you need to talk to the CFO, one, in terms of context. Okay? What does 9 million square feet look like? What is 200 million? 200 million sounds like a lot. Okay? Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Is that too much for a business? Is it not enough for a business? So you have to put it in the, in the terms of context. Okay? Maybe what we had last year, maybe what we have this year, where we're going, whatever it may be. Our competitors have this, da, da, da. And then in terms of money, in dollars, right? So 9 million square feet, well, that's nice, but what does that mean, right? Because the CFO is looking at numbers every single day. The treasurer is looking at numbers every single day. So when you describe this in terms of numbers, then they can kind of see where it plugs in, okay? So if the CFO, if you get a chance to meet with the CFO and you're sitting in their office and you want to describe the portfolio or maybe talk about your strategic plan for next year. And you say, I want to take my 9 million square feet and reduce it by 20%. So what is 9 million, what's 20% of 9 million? This is a math question. Just to wake you up. Come on. All right. We want to reduce our portfolio by 180,000 square feet in one year. Is that good or bad? Right? Put it in context. What does it, it mean? It might be a million eight. Could be. But we don't want to. Just checking on that. So, so what, is it, what, what does it mean? <laughs> Put it in context, right? Okay? Because whether it's 180,000, a million eight, or five million, whatever it means, it means nothing. Okay? So again, you've got to put it in context and put it in terms that they understand. Okay? That way you're going to get the heads nodding. Um, the other thing that I did, and I made a huge mistake when I first did this when I came to Aon, I was hired as the senior VP of real estate. 
Okay, I said that right on my business card. Okay, when I went and talked to the CFO and we talked about a capital lease strategy that we had, I got kicked out of that office so fast because we're talking about a significant financial transaction. And I, the mistake I made was when I went into the office, I sat with the CFO, and he said, so what does Bill say? And what does Adam say? So Bill and Adam were our treasurer and our um, head of finance. Okay, Because I was the senior vice president of real estate. I wasn't the treasurer. I wasn't the head of finance. So I never had a meeting after that time with the CFO to talk anything other than real estate without one of those two people with me. Or at least an email from them beforehand to the CFO saying that they validated what I was about to talk to, what I was about to talk about. Is that right? About to talk about? I'm dangling, I think. I dangle. but, but again, that's the context. So, so again, we're the real estate people. We're talking about finance because at the end of the day, no matter what we say, the strategy and all the cool stuff that we learn at Cornet doesn't, uh, doesn't mean a lot to the people that we report to. At the end of the day, it's all about the numbers. Okay? And we're not numbers people. Okay? Whether we have an accounting background or a finance background or an architectural background, we are real estate people, and we've got to go in there with the people that make the decisions. And the people that they look at, so when the CFO, when, next time when I go to meet with a CFO and I try to present a business case to them, or we talk about um, one of our restructuring initiatives, they look at me, and then the first thing they do is they turn to the person next to me to make sure that they're nodding their head up and down. And that just validates it right there. Okay. So primary focus of a corporation is on its core business. Obviously, unless we're in a retail business most, or maybe a bank, a lot of what we do, for us, it's about the people. It's about the intellectual capital. So the, the, the real estate that we have is just a necessary evil of growth. And we have not done a really good job of managing that growth. Uh, many companies have extensive real estate holdings, headquarters, distribution centers, manufacturing plants. With senior management's objectives focused on the primary business of the company, real estate is not equally recognized as assets. Sierra uh, executives who can communicate the impact of real estate are valuable to the organization and can contribute to the bottom line. Again, really the key on this whole thing is just about the communication and data. So again, our customers, our clients outside of the CFO, the people that in the, in, are in the business, don't expect them to understand real estate. Okay? Don't expect them to know when we go to the, talk to them 18 to 24 months out about a lease expiration that they're even thinking about it. Okay? It's our job to communicate and educate those guys. So the corporations prepare and publish an annual report which include the following. Balance sheet, cash flow, income, auditor's opinion, management, consolidated statement, notes to shareholders. Um, real estate is sometimes on the balance sheet. In what situation will we find real estate on a balance sheet? When it's what type of a lease? That starts with a C and ends in an L. Yeah. Smart group. Yep, absolutely. And you'd be surprised to find out, and we'll talk about it in this class, that you may have leases that are categorized as operating leases that are actually capital leases. And you know what happens if you find that? What don't you do? Tell anybody. <laughs> you don't send an email. <laughs> you communicate verbally. Okay? And we'll go through a capital lease test here. Um, another thing that gets you really screwed up with um, someone in the uh, finance group is when you talk about our real estate assets on our balance sheet. Okay? So we've got 200 million square feet of real estate, and it cost us a bazillion dollars, and it's all on our balance sheet. Or we've got a 200 million square foot portfolio on our balance sheet. And you'll be looking at someone in, the, in finance, and they're just going to look at you like you're the biggest idiot in the world. Okay? Because we don't have that on our balance sheet. Okay? So again, 
you know, understand your context, understand what we're supposed to be doing, but let the guys and, and the people that are in charge of this stuff and know this stuff, let them represent it with you. So the annual report is, is prepared to satisfy the information needs of stockholders, creditors, everybody knows all this stuff, right? When I was interviewed last week, unfortunately, by this uh, reporter at the Tribune, I got into, um, aside from the no comments that I had, I actually, I said to her, just go to the 10K. If you want to know what's going on with our real estate, go to our press releases. Because anytime you have something material to disclose, it needs to be disclosed in a K. And so all you have to do to find out anything about your company, if you want to look at the real estate assets of the company, if you want to look at some of the history, some of the actions that are going on, go to the company and just go down and pull down their 10K. You can look on the balance sheet, but again, you only have a certain number of leases there. Practically all measures of a corporation's business is in a series of financial statements. So again, we'll get into more detail about this later. The balance sheet, the cash flow statement, and the income statement. Of course, we'll focus on the nature of interrelationships between these. Goals. Long-term goal of a corporate finance is to maximize stockholder wealth. The short-term goal is to maximize profits. Balancing long and short-term goals to meet analyst projections. So this is the, the, the problem that we always have in real estate, right? Real estate's a long-term asset, right? We sign a lease for five years, ten years, whatever it may be. Business cycles change once every, what, three months or so? Okay. So our job from the strategy side is trying to figure out how we make the space flexible enough to accommodate the business growth up and down. But you know, as soon as you move out of a building, the, you know, you've got five floors in a, in, at the Aon Center, and you've got one floor that's vacant. You know what you got to do? Put a bunch of cardboard people in the space to make it look like there's people in there and walk around. You got to write it down. Okay, and we're going to talk about that later. But once you cease use of a space. Once you stop using it, you turn off the lights. You can even leave the lights on. Once you stop using that space and you've got 10 years left on the lease, you have to recognize that today. Okay? I'm sure you guys all do that, right? None of you have any space in your portfolio that's vacant that you just continue to pay rent on a monthly basis. You do? Well, no, no my question is, is, is <laughs> I have a friend who does. Uh, yeah, I know somebody. Um, it's not in this class. At this point, is it considered... Um, not being used. If you've got a full floor and there's five people on a floor that's suited for 200. Then it's being used. So we kind of played around with this before. So when, when I was at Aon, we went through a, sign, a huge restructuring project. It's a $300 million effort. Okay? And by the way, there's no such thing as real estate restructuring. There's business restructuring of which there are downstream repercussions from it. So when Ford decides that they're restructuring the business, right? Um, the Ford uh, CFO came from Boeing and decides that he wants to restructure some of the, the businesses and they're deciding as a result of that they close five plants. So that's the real estate piece of the larger real of the larger business restructuring. So if it's about consistency. Okay. So we at, at Aon had no policy around abandonment, around vacant space. The, the, the consistency and then that we follow the same practice every single time, just like we'll talk about in capital leases following the same process the same practice every time. If you write, write a policy, because when the auditors come to validate and to look at your books, they want to see written pro uh, processes and policies on everything. The policy is, for us, when we abandon the space, we wrote it down. Okay? In some of the, the bulletins that, that Todd and I will talk, show you later, it's about cease use of the space. Okay? So when we abandon the space, and we moved out of that space, and we cease use of that space, is when we wrote it down. Okay. Now, the trick is, if people came back into that space and started using it, we would have to make an adjustment on our books. Okay. The auditors like to see when you vacate a space, and they, kind of, and they treat it like a trap door. 
Okay? So if you move out of a building, for example, and you want to write that building, uh, it's not a building, if you, want, if you move out of one floor on a five-floor uh, lease, and you want to write down that lease, because it's what, what your finance group wants to do today, the, really the trigger for the auditors that they cannot have any ambiguity on is if there's some sort of letter that you've su subleased the space or you've terminated the lease with the landlord, if you've got some sort of evidence of doc documentation, essentially what they call a trapdoor, so you're talking about it moving out. Well, just because you talk about moving out, sometimes auditors are a little skittish on it because you can always move back in, right? The, the, the thing that they'll hold to the wall is if you have some sort of letter, if you have a termination agreement, if you have an agreement with a landlord, whatever it may be, then there's no ambiguity about that. The thing is, though, once you move out of a space in one location and you write it down, you can't go to another location and move out of the space and come back in. You know, it has to be a consistency. And the auditors will follow this, too. If you're going through a significant reorganization in the company and you move out of space, out of a number of spaces, you have to follow the same policies and procedures every time, and they'll nail you on it if you don't do it. Uh, the financial management includes financial planning and analysis, investment decision making, financing and capital structure, management of resources, and compliance. Um, you know, the thing to keep in mind from, from back here, too, the goals and the long-term and short-term goals, we just went through a budgeting process, okay? And the capital that we have on real estate is significant when you're talking about the businesses, um, where their capital plans are and their budgets are. So the real estate piece that we have plays a significant part of their, um, uh, both of the P&L, on their individual P&Ls and on their capital planning, and it's huge, right? So we have, um, you know, they look at the, at the capital spend that they have for the year, and they need to reduce it by 20%, they come to you and say, I need 20% reduction in real estate. Okay, how are we gonna do this, right? It's really, it's the rate and volume question. So if you're not moving, if you don't wanna move out of space and take less space, then how do you suggest we reduce our real estate spend? And again, if you look at that 200 million square feet or that billion dollars of real estate that you have, aside from the fact that only 10 million of that is expiring in the next two years, how much of that is fixed cost versus variable cost too? You need to look at that also. If you cease use of the space, if, you determine, if the company has determined that they will no longer use that space, that's when you write it down. Okay? If you, if, if you have, if once, you guys, once all you guys get out of here and the, we shut off the lights, this space is abandoned. Okay? When you all go to the bathroom in 30 minutes from now or an hour from now and two people stay here, it's not abandoned. Okay? But that was, a, that was one of the major changes that happened three, four years ago. Okay, because before, you were allowed to carry the shadow space, but you can't do that anymore. Now, that's not to say that companies don't do it. And, and again, when, we were, um, when I was at another place, uh, you, know, you kind of play around with it a bit, right? Because the reality of it is you don't have auditors walking around, okay? I mean, there's not, you know, E&Y is not coming through the space every single day, so you say it's abandoned, eh, you got a data center in there, you close, you know. I mean, be, be careful. I mean, don't say the space is abandoned if you've got a data center sitting right in the middle of the floor and you've got three tech guys walking in and out of it. That's not abandoned, okay? But again, this is cease use of the space. So if you, when you guys all walk out of here and we abandon the space, but you still have uh, all your 
stuff that you left in here and the cleaning crew has to come in and take it out, that's okay. Space is still abandoned. Okay? You still need to write it down. The thing with accounting is bad news, do it now. So anytime you know about any, you know, but the bad news is the fact that you moved out of the building, you've got 10 years left on the lease, you've got to write it down now. Accountants don't really like you to have a lot of fun like that. Um, again, who cares? The owners and the stockholders, investment versus donation, appreciation, long and short-term goals. Um, your chance of talking to the CEO about real estate, not so much, right? They care. I mean, for some reason, my CEO cares what color paint we use in our corporate headquarters. He really does. And what type of carpet we use. But those are not the type of conversations I want to have with them, right? Um, my direct reporting is not to the CFO, but to the head of shared services. But now that the CFO hears about how we report real estate on a financial basis, that's all he wants to talk about. So I have to leave here today, right after the class is over, because I'm going in front of the CFO and the CEO to talk about our next round of restructuring, that's going to come up in November when we release our earnings. So hopefully I won't get to the Tribune beforehand. Um, this is important when we think about this. Um, who is a C CEO accountable to? Accountable to shareholders through the board, responsible for predictable, consistent earnings growth. The CFO reports to the CEO and, and accountable to the board, responsible for management of financial resources. So if you think about the fact that the CFO is responsible for what goes on on a day-to-day -day basis, the CEO is responsible for predictable, consistent earnings growth like Todd talked about. So when we, have, when we talk about our, um, we give, we're giving guidance this year, and this is public, this is no big deal. For this coming up year, we're going to give guidance for the year. Okay? That's huge. My company's never done that before in the five years we've been a publicly traded company. We've never done it because we didn't have enough data underneath it. So now that we've got the data around it, we feel comfortable enough that we can give guidance for the year. Some companies give guidance on a quarter-by-quarter -quarter basis, but not much anymore. Maybe GE does. I don't know if they still do it because they're so good at it. But we do it, we're going to start doing it on a yearly basis. That puts a lot of pressure on us to uh, be consistent, to be sure of what we talk about, what we say we're going to do. What are you referring to that guidance? Um, so we're going to give, you know, you can't give any forward-looking um, information out to uh, investors or analysts, right? But you can give them guidance on what we think the year is going to be, some of the major events throughout the year. So, for example, in our last quarterly earnings release, the CFO and, and our investor relations ta um, lead talked about a restructuring of our company that would have impact over the next three quarters. Okay? That had a significant impact on our share price. We talked about the possibility of expanding a business growth or growing a business. You can't say too much. But again, to give our analysts some idea of what, what's to be expected, because what the analysts want to know is, what are you doing? Right? What are your plans? Okay, whether you're a publicly traded company or a private company, the people that invest in your company want to know what you're going to be doing. And to give them some sort of guidance without giving them really um, specific information helps their confidence. So our thought is, by doing this guidance that we've never done before in November, it'll have a very positive impact on the stock price. Now again, the key to this is we have to make sure that we actually deliver on what we say we're going to do. And again, the real estate reports the CFO responsible, for <laughs> responsible to provide facilities to house business operations. Okay? For those of you who don't know what we do, this is what we do. Think that this is what Todd says we do. Okay? We're responsible for, for providing facilities to house business operations. 
Um, someone on, who's AT&T, I'm sorry to keep picking on you, but not you, the one next to you. What do you do? But what's your value to the company? What do you do for the company? I'm try I, I have three kids, and my kids ask me all the time, what do I do? And it's so hard to tell them what I do, right? I, I, if I tell my kids I do this, they don't know what that means, right? What do you do at HSBC? Really, it's about just trying to make sure that the real estate portfolio operates as closely to the business and the business goals as possible. So it follows in line, flows, because the capital asset is close to a I lost it. I lost you right after. What about you, Stephanie? What do you do? So I think a lot of times that the CFOs and the CEO have the attention span of my seven-year-olds. Okay? And the trick is if we can communicate our message, what we're there to talk to them about, in less time than it took Stephanie to talk about what her job responsibility is and what she does for the company, where we win. And that's the key to be succinct like that. Because again, and I'm not picking on you, but the reality is when I go talk to someone in finance, so I thought you were about the facilities. I thought like when it stinks in the women's bathroom, that's when I call you, right? That's the thing that you got to get away from, okay? And I do get those calls, by the way. You can tell your uh, seven-year-old that you help Santa get the right size bag so you get as many toys as possible. I could. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thank you for that, RJ. <laughs> Talk, speaking like a real furniture expert, right? No, I, I, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Because one of the things that we do, so again, our business, my business is about um, intellectual capital. Okay? So we bring people into the office. We compete against the other consulting companies. So how do we differentiate ourselves? Well, in theory, we have smarter people and come up with better business solutions than anybody else does. But also, when someone walks into the space and they see you know, holiday in furniture from 1975 and stains in the carpet, not that our office is like that but stains in the carpet, whatever it may be, it's not really inspiring, right? So we clearly have an opportunity to use the assets that we have as, an, as a, both an enabler for work and a differentiator for our people. So right now, with all the restructuring that we're doing and all the changes that we're making, and I just came from 311 Wacker, we have, um, we renewed, contrary to what the reporter said last week, we're not moving out of Chicago. We just renewed our lease for 10 years, and the space that we moved into 
is different than the space that we had before. It's different because we used our furniture and we used the environment to help create a, a much more stimulating workplace for our associates. We also, by the way, took away a lot of the office space that, that we had and also, by the way, shrunk a lot of the space that we had before. So yeah, we had a financial impact in it, we had a workplace impact in it as well. And, the, and the, the C, my discussion this afternoon is all about the workplace. It's not about anything on finance. And I told you it's with the CFO and the CEO because I already got past that hurdle on the dollar side. So we said this is a good thing to do and this is the reason why. And now they're all about picking up the collaboration and how we can reconfigure the space. And that's Terry actually, I think she left um, to go talk to our head of HR about the meeting that we're about to have today. I actually see just the opposite. I actually see a lot of people now reporting to CFOs and more people on the financial side. And I see more people in real estate positions that traditionally don't have a real estate background. So I think the days of, you know, I remember Todd and I teaching this class a while back. And I mean, people, I mean, you pulled out the, you know, the HP. And people just, just like you pulled it out and they freaked out. Okay. And, and the response that we got was, you know, we have, have do, do simple calculations. I have my brokers do that. Or I have an analyst do it. Okay. Yeah, we do do that, but we still have to have a core understanding of, of finance. So I think it's, it's just the opposite. But, you know, again, part of a well-rounded team is we have some, you know, I have someone like Terry who that's all, you know, she's all about the workplace, and that's what she loves doing. Okay. I get to it a little bit, but then I get really dizzy, and I get a headache when we start talking about colors and furniture and everything like that. So. That was a joke. Okay. Yeah, okay. Anyway, all right, so who are the players? The CFO, we talked about this before, the treasurer and their controller. One thing I did again, and I think this is a great, um, a great thing that I learned from my previous employer, when I got to the new place, I went out to lunch with the treasurer and controller. These guys, or women, in my situation, are the, your best friends. This guy, eh, not so much, okay? Because he, he is doing a million other things. You get to be friends with these people, and, and you can walk into the meetings with him, with one of these or two of these, you're perfect, okay? So again, knowing your audience, coming up with a succinct message, speaking about what they know and how they talk about it, you run all the stuff through them and you do the joint presentations, you're perfect. Because look at what we're talking about here. All these things are things that we do, right? Or we touch pretty much every day. Okay, so Todd's gonna take us through an operating lease. Exciting? Okay. What what is I don't know. I don't have a succinct message. I can't figure it out. That's what I was hoping someone can tell me. I don't know what we do because my job is different pretty much every day. So as much as I do get those calls, and we had a fire in our building uh, two weeks ago. Okay, and I was just in, I was in a staff meeting when we had a fire, and people were looking at me like I'm like I'm supposed to know what, I'm, what you know. My boss was in there, and we had some other people, and they're looking at me like, what do you do? I don't know. Okay. But that falls under my um, responsibility. Now I've got good people that were controlling it. So on that day, I was acting as some, somewhat of a fire marshal and passing out free food coupons okay, for the people who didn't get to use their food. Okay? I don't know what to do. I mean, I don't know what I do on a day-to-day -day basis. Today I'm talking about workplace with the CEO and the CFO. You know, the other day I was doing, sitting in the treasurer's office for five hours working on our accounting issues. 
Okay? That's one of the things, by the way, that I like so much about this job is you do different things on different days. Okay, so you never know what's going to happen. I don't know what's going to happen this afternoon. Okay? But the stuff that we're going to be talking about in here, the key to it, again, there's really two things. To get a core understanding of the financials of what we're going to be talking about and the understanding of what we're going to be doing. The worst thing you can do from this class, though, is to take the stuff that we're about to go through and walk into the CFO's office and say, you know what, we've got a capital lease on our balance sheet. Oh, excuse me, we've got a capital lease that's not on our balance sheet. Okay? I would strongly advise you not to do that. Remember those people I told you that, that you know, should go take out to lunch and be really nice to? Run it by them first and let them be the ones to talk about it. Okay? All right, Mr. Anderson. <clears throat> we'll talk about an operating lease. But, you know, Kelly, to, to answer your question, um, um, and as RJ and I were talking yesterday, RJ made the point about the optimum organization would have no real estate, no employees, a product that goes right to the consumer. So we're sitting on the real estate side, certainly. And the closer that we can align the real estate to the business in what we do, the better. Align it in term, duration, to the business, the business cycle, so that as things move, um, the real estate is flexible with that. Somebody said, somebody commented to that earlier. Um, and then to, and then also to have it, you know, it's you're gonna, it's gonna cost you money, but to have it reflected in the in the manner that is best for the the direction that your company is going financially is important as well. And that's what we want to go through and demonstrate with income statements and balance sheets for a couple of for a couple of transactions, so that you understand that even if you have a finance background, and this is like real obvious to you, maybe what we'll go through puts a little different perspective on how real estate impacts that. Because while real estate outside of retail or something doesn't generally drive revenues. It certainly has a direct impact on profits from the expense side, okay? And we'll come back again when we kind of wrap up later this morning and show the relevance of that. But right now, we're going to go through a sort of a, a, an example, a case study. Um, and we're going to use the same example for the acquisition of an operating lease and then for acquiring the same space in a purchase, okay? And, it's a, and, and we've intentionally used a fairly generic example of a company that has a new space requirement of 50,000 square feet, okay? And these terms should be pretty familiar with everybody in the room, but we'll do a 10-year term on the lease, rent of $18 and operating expenses. So consider this like a modified gross uh, rent and operating expenses that might be utilities and janitorial and whatnot of $6.82. And in this particular example, we're going to put $15 of our own money into tenant improvements. Okay? We're going to put some equipment in the space because, again, we're looking at this from the company perspective, not just the real estate perspective. Um, the new facility is going to have some other operating expenses, GA expenses. 3.3 million and a tax rate of 36.36%. Okay? So what we're going to do with this, with this information is take a look at 
how that information impacts the income statement. Okay? Now, we're going to focus on the income statement and the balance sheet for the purposes of this example. All right? Two very different statements. Okay? The income statement, what's the primary purpose of the income statement? P&L is another name for it, profit and loss. What's the primary purpose of, of having this statement? Exactly, to show if you're making money or to show if you've got a profit. Okay? Your income statement is the statement that shows your profitability. It's the only one. You have a balance sheet and a cash flow statement. They don't show your profitability. Only the income statement shows you the profitability. Okay? And in, in accounting terms, all right, when you're talking about the bottom line, that's a specific reference to the income statement, and it's a specific reference to the bottom line. Because your bottom line on the income statement is your profit. Okay? Accountants aren't real creative in how they, how they name uh, name things. Yes? Uh, general administrative expenses. Okay? Just kind of the corporate overhead type of stuff. Okay? So if, if you're hearing somebody in the, in the accounting department, for example, talk about the bottom line. You know? They're talking ab about the income statement. If the, your company says we're bottom line oriented, they're talking about the income statement. They're not talking about the balance sheet. There is no bottom line on the balance sheet. Okay? So just in terminology, that's important to understand. Now, the income statement has fundamentally two sections to it. The top section is your revenue section. That's the money that comes into the company. And, and following that, you have your expenses. Okay? And uh, in accounting... You try to match your expenses with your revenue for, for the accrual accounting system. In other words, if, if you are selling products today that, that you had to buy raw materials for a year or two ago, you try to, you try to match those in a matching principle so that, so that when you get down to your, your profit, you're showing the profit from what you sold and what it costs to develop specifically what you sold. Okay. The other thing about the income statement is the income statement measures a period of time. It's cumulative. All right? So if you have an annual income statement, that's, that's measuring the revenue that you've accumulated throughout the entire year. Or you could have a quarterly income statement, and that would be the revenue for three months period of time. If you're a retailer during the holiday season, you may be looking at income statements or P&Ls, perhaps on a daily basis. You know, if, if that, if the December is such a driver for your business, okay? So let's take a look at how real estate impacts the income statement in this transaction. This is right out of the two-day course. And, and what we do in the two-day course, just to explain this, for, this, uh, uh, this slide, is we start with the fact that this is an existing operation. Okay, so this first column here is the company that's been in business for however long. They've already got $500 million in revenue, all right? And then you can see the expenses associated with that $500 million in revenue. So what we're saying is that we're going to, this company is going to expand. They're going to open a new office for 50,000 feet, 
okay? And they're going to open the new office because they expect that new office, which is the third column over here, they expect that new office to generate $11 million in revenue from the business. So it's like, okay, if we can generate more money, let's open an office. And in that revenue section up above, you'll deduct your cost of goods sold, and, and, which gives you your gross profit. Okay? Then we get to the expenses. Now, we've rolled up some categories to focus on the real estate expenses here. And that's a common practice in presenting financial statements. If any of you were to take your annual report, I guarantee you that no matter how large your company is, AT&T, HSBC, whatnot, your income statement will fit on an 11 half, 8.5 by 11 page. Okay? Because it will just roll things up into, into categories. Okay? And then, as David said, you can get your, your 10K or your 10Q, which is the quarterly publication of that. And, and it'll start stripping out all of that stuff where you can look more specifically at that information. Well, we've done the same thing here and taken a few liberties in the categories that we've broken out here. Oftentimes on the income statement, um, all of the real estate could be in administrative expenses, for example. Okay? So let's take a look here. Um, Rent is an expense, okay? So the expense with regard to this 50,000 square feet at $18 a foot is $900,000 a year, okay? And that rent expense goes on the income statement, okay? It's the only statement that it goes on. So, for example, if, if you were trying to find out the total rent expense or how much rent your company pays for leased premises, you would look on the income statement. And then you would see, in this case, this is the end of the year income statement. This would reflect how much rent you've paid for the year for this particular 50,000 square feet. And also, what you had before, or this middle column is adding the new space to it, this company has $20.9 million of rent expense across its portfolio. Yes? Are you assuming that you're, without transaction, your end of year one in column A, you're getting rid of that space then? No. And you're replacing it because wouldn't it be additive then? No. It, o it only reflects a period of time, okay? And so if you have, a, if you have a, an annual income statement, it's, it's only going to show your rent expense for one year, Okay? And this is one of the reasons that um, companies like to lease space, all right? Because even though this is a 10-year commitment, okay, and this is, this is $900,000, but you're not showing $9 million for 10 years. You're showing one year of expense, okay? That's a straight-line expense? Yes, yes. Because this is not a stepped rent, but it has to be a straight-line expense. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. Okay? So it only shows one year of expense. So, so whether it's a three-year lease or a 20-year lease, okay, if it's an operating lease, all you're going to show on your income statement is one year. Okay? Why is that beneficial to the company? If, it, if, it, if you had to put 10 years of expense here, what would the negative impact be? Your profits would be much less, wouldn't they? Okay? And quite frankly, when you, as you're bringing up straight lining of rents, this is why 
and, and it's always been the case, but the practices, for many companies, the practice has been to include what your cash expenses were, okay? So if a company had, if they did this 10-year deal, but they had six months of free rent, okay? If they, were, if they were reporting this on a cash basis, this number would look like what for the first year? 450. 450, okay? What impact would that have on your profits? Yeah, and your profits would go up, right? Okay, and that's, that was exactly the reason that over 300 companies had to, had to restate earnings because they were, re they were reporting on their income statement the cash basis of their rent, all right? And, and accounting has never allowed you to do that, but it was sort of the industry practice. And the reason it was a big deal, okay, is it was misrepresenting your profits. And what they're saying is that you've got to, you've got to straight line your rent, okay? So that if you, if, if, if you had six months of free rent in this deal, you know, your effective rent might be $17 a foot or $16.50. And that's what you've got to show here because if you show something else, it's going to impact your profit line. Yes? It's going back five or six years. And that's, that's why in the singular case they had to restate earnings for the from 2000 to 2004. Because they had to go back and make the adjustment. Okay? This is not unheard of. I mean, there are, there are a lot of companies that, well, although that's probably changed now, but two, three years ago that just did not straight line rent. And it wasn't because they were stupid people. They just weren't paying attention to it. And these policies and, and, and um, rules that, um, that are put out a lot of people just weren't applying it to the real estate principles. So you, it's not, it was not uncut. I mean, when, when, uh, five, six, seven years ago, we would find, when I was working at Ernst & Young, we would find companies all the time that did this. And so whether they weren't straight-lining their rent or whether they weren't accounting for free rent properly, um, you know, in a partnership, it's really easy. You know, all the, the partners who enter into Elisa, Kirkland, and Ellis, if, they wanna, if they're a managing partner of, an, of one of the buildings and they want to get a bunch of free rent up front, and not have that affect their profit as much and backload the, the lease cost. You know, for them, you can do that. It's really not the most um, at, um, honest thing to do. But you can't do that for a, a publicly traded company, and you really probably shouldn't do that for a private either. Who is Hewitt's but, number one competitor? Um, Watson Wyatt is a big one. Watson Wyatt. You know, David mentioned that they're tied into leases for the next four years, and they're providing guidance now, but then a lot of leases roll, okay? If, if those leases rolled and the market was such that you were getting six months or a year free rent. 
and you're providing guidance. If you were doing it on a cash basis, you could provide guidance that, hey, next year's gonna be a great year, our profits are going up. Why? Because, because they have an opportunity to structure free rent into the deal, where Watson and Wyatt might have you know, leases that are already in place, and, and that's what they're trying to get away from. That inconsistency because of the structure of the real estate, when the reality is your commitment is a 10-year a commitment for an amount of money. But a, a company, um, and this is exactly what happened with WorldCom, okay? Because WorldCom took things that should have been expense, and they, they actually did ju just, you know, they, for, for bottom line impact, the problem that WorldCom had is they took things that were supposed to be written off in one year and capitalized them, okay? Which meant they, they said, well, you know, this stationery that we're going to buy, we can probably stretch two years out of it, so let's take the cost and cut it in half. And you, can, you know, for things like disposable things, like you can't do that. You've got to write the whole thing off this year. But from a, from a magnitude perspective, the last account I saw, they had done that to the tune of $14 billion, okay? Why? It goes back to what David was talking about before, about the, you know, a fundamental driver of the CEO, predictable, consistent earnings. And when you've got problems in your earnings, they're looking for ways to, you know, to manage those earnings, and so in a competitive market, in driving, you know, your earnings, you know, they started to say, hey, a little bit of that is good, a lot of that is better, you know. And all of a sudden, they had really inflated earnings because of how they accounted for expenses on their income statement. Real estate's a pretty sizable expense on the income statement, okay. So even though on a, on a daily, monthly, yearly basis, there might be an incremental impact to what you can do. You need to understand that when you do an operating lease, this is where the lease hits on expenses, on the income statement. So going back to one of the fundamental things we want to talk about in this course this morning, is your company income statement driven or balance sheet driven? We're going to get to the balance sheet in a minute. But if your company is income statement driven, what they're telling you is the way it relates to real estate there, real estate can impact that through the expense side of the business. That's the lease side of the business. Okay, We're going to come to ownership next in the balance sheet in a minute for this transaction. Here's something really bad you don't want to do. You don't want to not tell your CFO that a lease is expiring in a year and the business wants to double the size. Because if you're going to surprise a CFO when they roll this up, on a quarterly basis or a monthly basis, whatever it may be, and they see that those middle lines with a much higher number than they expected because you doubled the amount of space that you have in Manhattan, that's bad. Okay, this, the worst. The, the CFO said to me at, um, two things. He said, "Be honest and don't surprise me." Okay, CFOs they they really they have they're not funny people. They have no senses of humor, and they don't like to be surprised. So if you do that, that's really bad. The market wants to see sort of consistent, predictable earnings. I mean, that's effectively what you're saying. Well, they want to yeah, see predictable earnings, but they're not opposed to seeing significant real estate increase if that means that you're you know, going through hiring and you have the same, and if your margins and revenue grow in proportion with what right, you're doing. In theory, I mean, you, know, I mean, you want your trend line to be... You know, no, you just said two different things. It's an important distinction. Predictable and consistent earnings 
Okay, this is not. That doesn't say predictable consistent earnings, okay? And that's not what's intended by predictable and consistent earnings, to have earnings always go up, okay? Predictable and consistent earnings, because many businesses are cyclical, is when your management says, we think, we think the market's going like that, okay? Predictable and consistent earnings is what actually happens. And if your earnings go like that, Pretty good. That's pretty good. Okay? They don't always have to go up, but it follows kind of what you thought it was going to be. Okay? If this is happening, okay, that's a problem. It's like, wait a minute, we're supposed to be here and you're doing this. You got any idea what's going on here? Just any clue at all? You know, or are we just a monkey throwing a dart? Going, yeah, I think I think we're gonna be here. So the thing is, it can go up and down, but the thing is, are you following it? You know, and what's that? Right, and it's like okay, we know that you know. Okay, um, if you're if you're a, a a borrowing sensitive company, okay, you can't predict what the Fed's going to do with rates or what the economy's going to do with rates. You, but if but if you're a really smart management team, you know, and have good advisors and whatnot, you could say, okay, our business, this is where our rate sensitivity is. And so this is, you know, okay, we, we understand that there's some volatility in the market right now, and this is how we plan for that. These are, you know, a, a representation of the factors, and, and the better the management of your company is, the closer they're going to be on the indicators of, of where you're going to be on that. It doesn't have to go like this. I think that trend, I mean, I wasn't Right, right? yeah, you had... The trend has to be... Yeah, you want to... Predictable and, cons and consistent, and that's why big surprises here... You don't, you don't want to be the guy that comes in with the big surprise. It's like, don't surprise me on this stuff. And, and Mark, when you're doing that, and so you know, and you're, you're aligned with your CFO and, and your treasurer, and you know that it goes like that, and you decide that you want to be a, a hero and sell a building in the fourth quarter, and there's a big cash impact, you better make sure that you talk to those people before you actually enter into that transaction, because that can have an impact on that. And then, they, and then they're going to have to explain that on a conference call to hundreds of people. And, and that's, the, the that's the alignment. And real estate is one of the components in your company that can have, you know, a big pop, okay? You know, selling a building for a big gain or selling a building for a big loss. And the result of having that big pop can, can kill you as a real estate professional if because market conditions were so great that you know what, we were talking about selling it, I got a buyer that came in, you know, that wants the, you know, so we go ahead, we did the deal, and give me a bonus, because I sold it for more money than anybody could have ever imagined it could have been sold for, okay? That big pop could have just done this to, to your CFO, okay? But if you realize that you can have that kind of impact, okay, that could, that could also, you, you can be the hero of the day. Because there's other parts of the business that might have unavoidable surprises to them that couldn't have been anticipated. You know, Bridgestone Tires gets hit with a billion dollar lawsuit because some Ford Explorer flips over. Okay? Kind of unpredictable that that, that that could happen. But you know what? If you realize that, that in the real estate department, you know what? We've owned our headquarters building for 20 years. We got, you know, whatever. A $200 million gain on the thing, 
might be a good idea to bring that to somebody's attention. To say, look, it, I can help this, this unexpected loss. We have an unexpected gain. It can work the other way. You know, Apple computers, they come out with the iPod. Sell four or five times the amount of iPods that in their wildest projections they didn't anticipate. Okay, all of a sudden they got this huge, they got this huge income. You know, and, and you know, who's, who's the second most excited entity, you know, with, with regard to unexpected income? Shareholders are probably the first. They're very pleased with it. Who's the second? Who? Who? No. The government, the IRS, they're going, yeah, I'll go buy those iPods because they're taking 36% of it, right? You know, when you come in and you got that dog property that nobody wants to touch because it's like, I don't want my career associated with the fact that I took a $100 million loss. Let me tell you, in a situation like that, you bring that to the CFO's attention, you might be the hero of the year, okay? Because if you can, because that, that loss goes against those, those earnings, okay? And you can reduce that tax ex exposure, you know, and, and help level that out. This is what we're talking about, understanding what the impacts are so you can align the real estate department with where your senior management's going. But it has nothing to do with market conditions, okay? It has to do with, with aligning with predictable, consistent earnings, okay? So let's, go, let's, let's continue to go through this. Along the same lines, operating expenses, okay, are going to show up here. So the $6.82 becomes $341,000. This is all in your book, so I'm going to move a little bit quicker now. So you've got, you've got a total rent expense when you combine the two of, of a million two, all right? Now, we, in the course we talk about depreciation more than, than we do here. But for those of you, the simple explanation for depreciation is that when you have, when you buy, okay, an asset that has a useful life, over a longer period of time, longer meaning generally longer than a year, because one year is the typical accounting cycle. So if you have multiple periods of time in accounting terminology, that means multiple years, not months, not days, not decades, okay? So if you, in this case, all right, spend your money, well, spend your money for tenant improvements, in a lease, okay, for financial statement purposes, you would, you would take that amount of money and divide it on a straight line basis over the period, the term of the lease, okay, which in this case is 10 years. So the $15 a tenant improvement expense that we had to put our money into in this would be $750,000, 15 times 50,000 square feet, okay, and so you're going to use up in a one-year period of time one-tenth of the value of those tenant improvements, okay? So here your expense associated with this is $75,000. Now, that also is not a cash expense, okay? In fact, in the first year, you know, I mean, how many contractors in here take a 10-year payment on TIs? You know, not likely, right? So that first year, you really spent $750,000. But if you put the whole $750,000 here, what would that do to your profits? It would dramatically lower your profits. And yet, you're not going to spend that every single year you're in the space. You're going to use those tenant improvements over 10 years. Okay? So for accounting purposes, we're saying we're, gonna, we're using up $75,000 of that a year. Yes? 
assume that the landlord gave you the $15 allowance. Where does that show up? If the landlord gave you the money, that shows up the same way here, okay? And this is an important distinction, and we're not going to belabor this, but we'll come back at the end, and I'll show you where you can get the, the, the references to this. But understanding this, because it's an excellent question, understanding this could significantly change the way you negotiate deals, okay? The bigger, in the new accounting, and, and we'll reference this at the end, and it's in your book, so remember, you're never the expert, but you have to ask the right questions. In the new accounting, whatever money the landlord contributes to the space is considered a financial inducement to you to, for you to do the deal, not unlike free rent. Okay? And when you're straight-lining your rents, you've got to include that TI financial inducement. Now, here's the difference in the specific answer to your question about who spends the money or who gets the money. If the landlord does it, you include that as a financial inducement like, like a free rent. If he gives you the money, okay, and you spend the money that he gives you, two things happen. Number one, that's revenue. That money, any money coming into your company is revenue. That's taxable money if he gives it to you. Now, the practice has often, you know, has usually been that they don't, actually include that as a revenue line, but that will change as, as we have, you know, with SOX compliance and, and all of this stuff. So generally, probably not the most favorable thing to do. And it's not the thing you want to tell the, that, that you want to dictate to the finance department the accounting tr treatment. It's a question that you would ask your accounting department. We're structuring deals. It, the landlord wants to give us 15 bucks a foot. How do we treat that? You know, and your accounting department, if you ask them that way, they may come back with very, don't take that money. <laughs> you know, structure it into the deal because they have to record that as revenue, okay? But also then, then if you're spending the money, you have to take the depreciation on it. If the landlord's doing it all, the landlord's going to take the depreciation on it, okay? You may want to take the depreciation, okay? It's, there's not a right or wrong in this scenario, the thing is, do you understand why you're doing it? And this is where we're talking about aligning the real estate and asking the question and communicating in terminology that you're going to get the response. Yes? Yeah, yes. They wouldn't have to recognize this as revenue, but the value of the space is an inducement. Okay? Now, after that, and I don't want to belabor this too much, there's a big gray area in that. Let's say it's raw space and they're putting in VAV boxes and ducting and sprinklers and ceiling and the whole thing costs 60 bucks a foot, okay? You know, when you're, from a real estate perspective, we understand that some of that stuff, some of that, that stuff is going to stay in the building for the benefit of the building, you know, and then some is specific to our use that the next tenant will probably wipe out, okay? If you just do the deal, you know, at that point, once you sign the deal, it's pretty much going to be up to your accountants, your finance department, and your auditors to make that distinction about, you know, and they'll probably just say, hey, 60 bucks was spent. You need to use the 60 bucks. If you want to manage that, now, you may want it to be 60 bucks, but you may say, no, 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 30 bucks of that stays with the building. And I would argue that that's not an inducement to our specific deal, you know. That's a necessity that the building has for anybody to occupy the space. Only $30 relates to ours. Let me tell you something. Once you've done the deal, that argument's going to fall on deaf ears with your finance people, accountants, and auditors. 
they're just, it's like, wait a minute, I, all I see is $60, and here's how I'm treating the $60. This is why you want to be engaged in the process. Not on every deal, you need to understand going in how your company treats this. Two quick things. Um, again, we talked about the alignment and the communication. Todd just talked about depreciation for property and TI for 10 years, okay? If, if you're in the ninth year of this deal and you're going to renew there for five more years, what happens to that depreciation? Well, if you've depreciated your TIs for, for 10 years and you're, and you're, you're in ninth year, you two years out, what happens? No more depreciation, right? So on a, on a location by location basis, maybe it's not that big of a deal, but if you've got 300 leases and 50 of them are, are rolling over and you're renewing all 50 leases and the depreciation goes away, that number could be material. And in your planning meetings that you should be having, or if you don't have a planning meeting, a note you want to send, you may want to give a heads up to someone in your finance department that all, all this depreciation that we were taking for the last nine years, and we've got one more year of it, two years from now, that's gone. Because as we're doing our advanced planning and our budgeting for the next two or three years, we're anticipating. I mean, they don't know. They're not looking at this. Assume they're not looking at this as closely as we are. And this is our area of expertise in the real estate side. So you've got X number of years of depreciation and a total cost, not on a location basis, but on, a, on an aggregate basis of this, that depreciation goes away. Okay? Now, again, good or bad, depending on the situation, but that's gone. And really, that's our objective and our opportunity to tell the, the accounting people this. One more thing before I forget. Um, anyone do a lease outside of the U.S.? U.K.? We know what dilap... Uh, I screwed this word up. Dilapidations, Dilapidations are, are is, right? And do you know you have to account for that today? Right? So we know there's a DLAP, which essentially means at the end of the lease term, you have to pay 3 million pounds or whatever it may be to bring the space back to its original condition. That, remember we talked about bad news recorded today? So you need to accrue for that today for an event that's going to happen 10 years from now. Guess what, though? If you have in your lease in the U.S. that you have to bring a portion of the space back to its original condition, you have to accrue for that today. So if you have a lease that expires in... If you have a lease that expires in 10 years and you have to and at the end of the ninth year and whatever month it is, if you have to bring that space back to its original condition or whatever it may be, or you have to pull something out or whatever it may be, and there's a cost assumed with that, and you don't accrue for that today for the next 10 years. Yeah, but are you accruing your zero cost or your 20 cost? I mean, if it's a $3 million cost today, it could be a $3.7 million cost in the next 10 years. Right. Well, you accrue the cost. What the cost is going to be is what it is when you rip it out. Now, two questions, but just a corollary to that, just while we're on the same thought process. Because he said, you know, if you're in the ninth year and you extend it and that drops off. Conversely, if you cease using the space in the fifth year, we're going to talk about what the impact is that you have to write down. But, but you have taken that 750 and you've anticipated using it over 10 years. If you end the term halfway, that's a big write-off you've got to take because you've got to accelerate the last five years of that and take a bigger write-off. This is what we, we're trying to convey in this course. In real estate, you really it's incumbent upon the real estate department to understand this, to give the heads up. Because your CFO, treasurer, controller, well, they could be the most brilliant finance people you know, in the market. They may not be brilliant in real estate. 
your CFO may have been brought on because of his mergers and ex acquisition expertise or his bond issuance expertise or stock issuance or debt or whatever. There's a lot of aspects of finance, okay? So we don't have to talk, tell them how to do the accounting or anything else, but you've got to understand these concepts and the fact that the things that we're talking about here with straight lining rent or, or the impact of you spending money for tenant improvements or the landlord spending money, that has a dollar-for-dollar dollar effect on your profit. Dollar for dollar, not not like the not like the five percent ten percent gross margin on profitability that your salespeople have, where if, if if they sell something or don't sell something, it's a five percent impact. The expense side of the business is a one hundred percent impact, dollar for dollar on the bottom line, and that's why. When, when real estate, which has a lot of expenses associated with it on the lease side of the business, when, when it's off a little bit, it, it goes right to the profits. That can be a good thing if you're paying attention to it. If it's a surprise in a negative way, it can be a very bad thing. So this may hold on to that one. Did you have a follow-up and then you had a question? No, what I was talking about there was things that you would say, that's not for us. That's a building improvement, even though the landlord may have attributed the fact that it was a $60 cost to build out the space. Cost segregation would be breaking down the depreciation schedules for different components of space, like computers and furniture and, and, and TIs. Okay? Um, so... What I was referring to is making the argument that, yes, it may have cost $60 to build out our space from shell condition. The part that should be attributable to our financial statements should only be, shouldn't be the, the part that the building had to pay because they had to do it anyway for any tenant. It should be the thing specific to us. But that differentiation technically is going to come from your finance department, or you should bring it up with the finance department. Let me throw it back to you and say, well, you know, we don't know. How, what, how it should it be split, in which case you bring your real estate expertise into it from the construction side, but not from the financial statement side. But if you do, if you do, do what Todd is saying and you separate it out, then we talked about before consistency, then you need to show that you do it on every single one. Yeah, you can't pick and choose which leases you yeah. do it on. Yes? That is exactly the right philosophy, but they are breaking it out. They're, what they're saying is, yes, you're, that's in your rent, and that was the component of it, and that's, it's, like, it, it's sort of like the free rent example. Okay, I've got six months of free rent. That's built into the, the other nine and a half years I'm paying, which is why they're saying, well, it's not really the $18 rate we're reflecting here. It's the $16.50. Because the six, because we've got to straight line it, okay, and so that consideration, that six-month inducement in free rent, you know, means okay, you're paying a higher nominal number here, and and we know that the higher number hurts hurts um, profits, right? Okay, but it's not your stockholders that are making these rules. Who are who's making these rules? 
Yeah, yeah the, the government. Let's just call it the government. Okay, why would the government want to say, no, 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 we don't want you to use the higher number. We want you to use a lower number. <laughs> they get more taxes, right? The less expenses you have mean the more profits you have and the more taxes they get. So you remember, that's what's kind of behind all of this. So they're saying, no, 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 we don't want you to show $18. We want you to show $16.50. And to exactly your point, they're saying, yeah, but you know, that $16.50 includes some tenant improvements too. So if the tenant improvements, that tenant improvements may lower that number down further to, to $15 a foot. And that's exactly the concept. It, it hasn't been the practice. And in fact, specifically, it got so confusing that, um, that it, a whole, we're going to talk about GAP and, and FASB a little bit later, but it's a collection of people with financial interests. It's not just accountants and CPAs and CFOs. You know, it's industry organizations and everybody else that goes into creating the rules that make up generally accepted accounting principles. Okay, and this exact point, because of these issues and because of SOX, got, got, they finally just sent a letter to the, the, you know, these groups, sent a letter to the SEC and said, you've got to define this stuff for us. And so it, the SEC, and this is, this is actually the letter that, that came from uh, uh, Donald Nicolaisen, who was the chief accountant for the SEC, that's, that's a guidance letter on how to, how to handle, and one of the issues is exactly tenant improvements, saying how are we supposed to, you know, account for exactly the discussion we're having here. And they said, yeah, it's a financial inducement. You've got to account for it. If any of you have heard about this in the real estate, in your real estate department, it probably came down to you like, here's the new rule. Okay? That's a misnomer. It's not a new rule. This is the way it was written in 1973 when they came up with, or 1976 when they came up with FAS 13. It just wasn't practiced. Just like straight lining of rent for so many companies, large companies, you know, 300 companies had to restate earnings. It wasn't the practice in the real estate department, but it has always been the rule. And so if some of you have heard about this or want to reference this, and this is in the back of your books, and we'll I'll bring it up again at the end. So, so, so let's say there's, let's say there's a, uh, a, a um, you've got $60 of tenant improvements, and you've got your rent. If you're saying the $60 is an inducement, you can't, you can't, it's not a charge. $60 Neither is free rent. No. Free rent's not a charge. It's only revenue if you get the money. Okay, well, that's, that was my question. I thought you were saying an because it was an inducement, it had to be reflected. In other words, the landlord does all the work. You, yeah. You never, you never touch a penny of it. He says, I'm building it. And you, when you walk in, it's turnkey. It's going to be built out the way you told me to. That's great. And I thought you were saying that because that's an inducement, it has to somehow be reflected. It, well, it does, but it's reflected in a reduction. It's a reflected as a reduction off you know, your, your rent stream. So for, let, let, me, let me phrase it a little differently. Uh, f the free rent example is one way to look at it. Let's say a generic build-out is 20 bucks, you know, and, and um, you know, you're Hewitt and, and, you know, your typical space is 50 bucks a foot, and you want the landlord to do a tenant improve, you know, to do the turnkey build-out, okay? What's going to happen to your rent if you want the landlord to build the space? Rent's going to go up, right? The landlord's going to say, fine, I'm going to charge you 30 bucks in an interest factor on the money. The rent's going to go up. Okay, all right, they're saying, okay, that's an inducement for you to enter the space. 
Even though the lender's not giving you the money, he's doing the work, he's charging you a higher rent, but the fact is that was an inducement, so, so just like free rent, your rent's going to come back down to reflect what that inducement was. No. But it's only revenue. If, if, if free rent isn't revenue. If Todd writes me a check for that equivalent of free rent and in a lump sum, that's revenue. Okay? And I forget the rent. I fully understand free rent in the average because I think you're maybe you're at least at least maybe you're confusing by keep on using that as the example. Let's stick to the very fixed example of tenant improvement. If I get sixty dollar check from the landlord per square foot and I can go out and buy whatever I want, uh, that's one free that's revenue. Okay, that's revenue. Uh, and my rent is still going to be whatever it is because the landlord's going to factor that in. Um, but instead, I want the land. I tell the landlord, you build it out. Don't give me the money. You take the depreciation. You own it. You do everything. Where is where is where is is that does that tenant improvement? His expenditure of sixty dollars. His delivery of sixty it's implicit I, in the rate. It's in your rent. I understand. But I, yeah. I thought you were saying it had to be reflected. It's implicit in the rate. Right. But if he gives you the money, it's revenue. And it's implicit in the rate. And you'll have depreciation. Okay? So you take one simple concept here. You know, about, and this is what the course is about. And at this rate, we're going to be here two days. <laughs> but these are all excellent questions. <laughs> but the, the, the afternoon after the break is going to look like a movie up here. <laughs> I just, I'll state one last thing, though. I think that, correct me here, though, one, the one way of doing it, in other words, if you take that check for 60 bucks in year one, you're taking a lump in year one, which has a larger impact, therefore lesser earnings in year one, and going forward, no. No, you still you still straight line it. The, you will have a lump in revenue that comes in. Okay, that will be a lump. But as far as your utilization of the space, yeah, and not to not to not to completely confuse everybody, but it's an important point <laughs> um, that I need to make at this point when we're talking about depreciation. Your company has two sets of books. Okay, that's normal for every company. The third set of books, that one you got to be a little careful of. But every company has two sets of books. You have your financial statement, your FASB GAAP financial statement books. And you have your tax books, okay? And they're different. And depreciation is, is the, the, the most significant difference between those books, okay, for real estate. Because in real estate, for real property, which includes... Your tenant improvements that you spend that you spend money on, okay? For real property, the government has just stipulated depreciation is 39 years. So if you spend your money to build out tenant improvements, your tax books, your tax books are gonna are gonna depreciate that over 39 years. Guaranteed, for sure, no two ways around it. Which, by the way, are going to give you higher taxes because it's going to be a smaller number. Even on a 10-year lease. Even on a 10-year lease. It's only your FASB GAP financial statements 
that say, okay, well, yeah, we know, okay, that's tax, that's government, okay, but for for consistency across all companies in reporting profits, you know, it will be the shorter of the 39 years or the term of the lease, okay? At the end of your lease, there's a reconciliation that your controller does between your tax books, you know, writing off all that depreciation you haven't taken yet, writing that off at the end of your 10-year lease if you leave the space, okay? So just so that if you hear in your company, it's like if, you, if you're talking to a tax guy, he'll just probably tell you, no, 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 it's, it's 39 years, it's 39 years. Well, he's a tax guy. It is 39 years for a tax guy. For your, for your, for your, you know, for your finance side, it's the lease term, okay? Stay away from the tax guys. They're just yeah. <laughs> yes. so worse than the treasurer. Yep. And you also have to write off all those future rent payments. No, no. The, we'll get to that later. Okay. But it, it'll be the difference between your rent payments and what the market is for subleasing the space. The market is whether you attain that or not. Yes, and then you'll do subsequent write-offs. But we'll come back to that in the movie section in the, after the break. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. All right. It's the same thing for equipment. Okay. So we bought $2.2 million worth of equipment. Now, the 10 years is coincidental. The equipment has nothing to do with the lease term. The equipment has to do with the useful life of the equipment. And in this particular case, to make it simple, we're just saying the useful life of the equipment we're buying is 10 years. If it's a computer, it'd be one year. You just write it off. If it's a copy machine, it might be three or five years, okay? And that gets into some of that asset segregation stuff because different type of assets have different depreciation schedules, okay? So, so we use this just to, just to make that point, okay? So you have a total depreciation amount, which is not a cash number, because remember, you really spent $750,000 cash to the contractor, and you really bought the equipment. In this case, you bought it for cash. You didn't finance it for $2.2 million, but your financial statement doesn't show that amount. It shows this depreciable amount, okay? Now, as you get through here, uh, you know, operating interest expense, we didn't have any. That'd be like interest rates on a loan or something. Discontinued operations, there were none. Um, so you come down to total occupancy-related expenses, and you get a million and a half bucks, okay? It's your rent. It's your depreciation for TIs and equipment, okay? This is the line 12 here, that 3.3 million. That's kind of the, the G&A number. So, so where in your real financial statements, they'll wrap all the all the real estate together, we're wrapping all the overhead together, just for the purposes of eight and a half by 11. So we have total operating expenses of four million eight. And so what this is, is that's the total of all the expense side. So when we get down to profit from operations, okay, that's, that's taking our gross profits of 6,380 and subtracting now our operating expenses of, of four million eight. So we get a million and a half bucks, okay? This is what our, our profit from operations should be from opening this new office. And this is why we're doing it, okay? Because we're saying this is a profitable venture to, to take this 50,000 square feet, perhaps in a new city or whatever the case may be, all right? Of course, we have to pay tax on that profit at 36%. And so we end up with a bottom line net profit of 983. 
So let's just, let's just take and, and put those numbers up here because we'll follow this through as we do the other ones as well. But on the income statement, okay, on the income statement, we're dealing, we're dealing with the expense side, okay? And what we're showing as an expense relative to this is we're showing rent, okay? And the rent is 900. And um, occupancy expenses, and that's uh, 341. And um, depreciation, Uh, which is a total of 295, okay? So the, the impact, the real estate impact of doing this transaction on the income statement, okay, and this is for the, the lease, okay, is, is that. And what we'll do is we'll come back when we do the purchase, okay, and we'll, we'll, take, a look at, we'll take a look at the income statement impact of the purchase of this same space relative to the lease, okay? That's the income statement. And what's the income statement prepared for? Profits, okay? So let's go to the balance sheet now, okay? The balance sheet has, has three sections to it, but it's really kind of divided in half. The top half of the balance sheet are your assets, okay? Assets are things that you own. And the bottom half is liabilities and stockholders' equity. Liabilities are things that you owe, obligations you have, okay? And stockholders' equity is whatever's left over. That's, that's what the owners of the company get between what you own and what you owe. Okay, can stockholders' equity be negative? How can it be negative? How can the money you put in the company be negative? Well, if, if you owe more money on, than what you own, okay, it, it can be negative. If you have a liability on real estate that you own and the real estate value goes down, okay, it could be negative. But we're going to talk about that in just a minute as it relates to the, the balance sheet, okay, more in the purchase. Anyway, as far as things that, oh, and the other thing that's important about the balance sheet is that the balance sheet does not measure a period of time. The balance sheet measures a moment in time, okay? The balance sheet accurately reflects what you own and what you owe for one day, you know, for the day that you create it, okay? And what's the significance of that to real estate? Yeah, right. So depending on the day, it's the day before, the day after a transaction, the day of a transaction. Particularly a sale, right? Right. If you, I mean, if, you're, if your fiscal year end is a calendar year, so it's December 31st, the difference between selling or buying a building December 31st or January 1st is really, you know, a whole year, quite frankly, when you're, if you're closing your balance sheet at the end of the year. 
I mean, how many people have been involved in a sale or purchase where, they, where you've been very date-specific on when it has to close? Is anybody in here? Quite a few people, okay? That's a completely balance sheet-driven function. And usually in those instances, okay, your finance department is, I mean, usually it's not close between the money you get or the date. If it's date-driven, there's usually a pretty, good, a pretty good spectrum or latitude in the price that you can get for it. They may say, we don't want to lose money on the deal, but as far as whether you can hold out and get a couple million more bucks, they don't care. That's like the market-driven side. They don't care. Close it by this date. I don't care if you can get $5 million more million by closing it next week. If next week is January 3rd, I'm screwed. i got to have it now. Get the deal done. Okay? That's a completely balance sheet-driven comment. Because okay? once you close your books, you can't open them up again. And so if you've got something that Todd was talking about before, unexpected, or you've got a gap or whatever it may be, and you're getting pushed to close it now, you've got to close it now because once that date's gone, you can't go back and re-enter it. One, well, I'm sorry, just one thing. We'll hit this more in the movie, but it's important to talk about when we do the operating lease discussion. If it, when you're in a space and you've got nine months left on it and you've entered into another lease, you've signed a lease agreement for another space, when do you start recognizing that new lease? The when the landlord gives you that key for the new space, whether you occupy that space yet or not, or whether you've built that space out or not, that's your space to keep. And you have to recognize it. And if you don't, so I've lived this, you've got a business unit that's paying X amount of, of rent a year and X amount on a monthly basis and you enter into a brand new lease for them because they're growing and it's brand new space and everyone's really excited and all of a sudden they get their next month's allocation and their rent is double that's real i mean that happens that's rent on uh, the assets to build that space which is not occupation on, on assets no it's not occupation it's, it's when they give you possession of the space yep so even if you can't even if it's impossible for to use that's when you have to start accounting for it, that date. And that, by the way, is another clarification in this same, in this same letter. Because people were saying, you know, when is it? Usually we start it when we get in the space. You know, are you telling us now we have to start it when our contractor starts building the space? And he says, no. You might have to start it six months before that. Because when the landlord gives you possession of it, that's when it is. If you know that, that's an easy thing to work around. Because you could write that into the, you could write that into the lease. Okay, you could have a new, a new clause in the lease that says possession date. And you could just say, I want to make it clear, even though your space is sitting vacant now, I don't want possession until September next year. I'll put it in the lease. And then, then for that accountant that looks at it, that he understands. But you leave it vague and he says, well, wait a minute. Wait, what do you mean your architect was measuring the space six months ago? If, you, if your architect was measuring the space and the landlord let you come in and... And really what it's based on is your, your obligation, your commitment to the space. You know, when you've got any insurance obligation to it or any obligation, you know, the landlord's doing the build-out and people say, well, wait a minute, I'm not doing the build-out, the landlord's doing it. Well, yeah, you know, perhaps if you could walk away and, you know, and just have no exposure to that, but you can't. When the landlord's building the space, if you walk away, you're going to have to indemnify him against the cost that he has. So it's when he gives you possession. But you can write it in the lease if you know that. So imagine if you're, in part, you know, you're trying to partnership with a business and you say, this is a, you know, coming up at the end of the year, you've got a great new lease and a new spot, everyone's happy, 
you're, you're going to have this person work on your review to give to your manager. Everything is good. All of a sudden, you find out when they get their next allocation that the rent is doubled. And then that you haven't accounted for it either. So you do work for Boeing, correct? Yeah. So Boeing owns their building. Yeah. And the tenant says, I want to delay the turnover for six months so they avoid that. How does that impact Boeing's um, financial statements? Um, I'd rather not go there. <laughs> um, because because when, when we do, people, people want to have a zero balance game. There isn't a zero balance game, okay? Because what's happening on your financial statements, what's happening on a landlord's book, whether it's a, a corporation, and I think you're asking from a corporate standpoint more than a landlord standpoint. Yeah, what's happening on the, owner, the, the building side is completely different, okay? The, the building is, has got a, a different set of accounting, different set of rules. For, for tax, it's the same. It's still 39 years, okay? But, you know, for real estate types of things and whatnot, as an example. But, but I, let's not go there because everybody's like, well, wait a minute. You know, how can two people have depreciation on a space? Or how can, it's like, no, it's two sets of books, and that's just the way our great system works, okay? Um, okay, so, what? Okay. <laughs> Pretty blatantly, though. Um, so, so anyway, uh, the, the balance sheet is what you own and what you own. Okay, so here it starts off with cash. We don't go through the cash flow statement here, but as you can imagine, we talked about it. Okay, the income statement showed this depreciation, but you really spent the cash. So from a cash perspective, you would expect this transaction probably required you to put cash in. So it's negative on a cash side. Now, you're a big corporation. You had a lot of cash, so... But that's what you expect. You paid for TIs, you bought equipment, okay? Um, so your total, your total current assets, which are things that can be liquidated in a year, and even though you can sell a building in a year, that's a, that's a long-term asset. This is stuff like cash, stocks and bonds, inventory, things like, things like that, that in the ordinary course of business turn in the course of a year. Then we get down to property, plant, and equipment, long-term assets, okay? So on the real estate side, the 675, anybody know where the 675 is coming from on the real estate? That's the tenant improvements. Now, this is at the end of the year. So how much did our tenant improvements cost when we paid the contractor? 750. But how much did we use up during the course of the year? 75. So at the end of the year, okay, the asset on our book isn't 750 anymore. We've used up 10% of it, so it's 675. This is a really important concept that's very US-centric as well, called historical cost accounting. Okay? The assets on the balance sheet of US corporations go on the balance sheet at the price you paid for it, 750, less the depreciation, what you've used up over time. So in this case, the asset on our balance sheet is 675. Okay? Does that reflect what it's worth? You know, maybe for tenant improvements, yeah, because you know at the end of 10 years you're going to get rid of it. But what about the buildings you bought and own? Okay? What about AT&T? Okay? I don't know what your ratio is. Was it 50-50, did you say? Yeah. 75 being what? Owned. Okay, so you've got... 200 million, I think you're actually closer to 300 million in space. So you've got, um, you know, you've, 75% of that, quick, what's 75% of that, what, 50, 200? What? 
It's 200. <laughs> 180,000, yeah. Um, you, you know, 200 million square feet is owned, okay? And, and you bought that last year, right? No. I mean, how long is AT&T? I mean, you got stuff on your books probably 50 years old, okay? Older. How old is, like, the oldest stuff? Do you have any idea? Just guess. No? Okay. Well, let's just say 50 years old, okay? So on your balance sheet... In historical cost accounting, what's on your balance sheet for that 50-year-old building is what you paid for it 50 years ago, 50 years ago, less the depreciation you've taken since. Okay? So you, got all, you look at your balance sheet and you go, well, you've got a pretty good chunk of real estate on here. Okay? Is that the market value of the real estate? No. Not anywhere close, you know, for a corporation that's been in business for a while. Not anywhere close. So the thing is, and we'll come back to this again at the end, oftentimes we ask people along the lines of what David did earlier, describe your real estate portfolio. A lot of times we ask people, what percent of your financial statements does real estate represent? Okay? And so, in, in, you know, I mean, does anybody want to venture a guess on your, your company or a range? or What percent? I mean, you know, you know wages and salaries, that's your biggest expense, Right? Real estate's usually second or third, still a big expense, okay? What percentage? A lot of people say 5%, 10%, which is, what? 8%, okay, depending on the kind of company, all right? And that's, so let's say 5 to 10%, okay? I still don't know what you told me, okay? Because just what we've gone through so far in this, Okay, if it's 5% to 10%, let's say 8. Let's say 8% of, of uh, your financial statement. It's like, well, which one? We just talked about two. Is it 5% of the expenses on your income statement, or 8%, or is it 8% of the assets on your balance sheet? Okay? And that's why a lot of people say, well, but yeah, but it doesn't matter. I mean, 8%, it's like, you know, I mean, wages are 50% or 60%. We are immaterial. It may, be a, it may look like a big number, but it's like, well, wait a minute. Is that, is that really what it is? Because we just talked about on the income statement, okay, how much rent is reflected as an expense on the income statement? One year. Okay. So if you decide to lay everybody off, you just leave your space, right? Well, no. What if you signed a 10-year lease? You've got a 10-year obligation on that. So let's just take an average. Let's say that you got five year, you know, an average of five years remaining on your leases. Well, that means that you've got an a rent expense obligation throughout your portfolio of five times what your income statement's showing. Okay? So if it's 8%, okay, well, your obligation is, your obligation is really more like 40%. Okay? Now, we just talked about historical cost accounting here. Okay? And if you say, well, yeah, but, you know, it's, it's, I looked at the assets. Our property, plant, and equipment is only 8, 8%. Our real estate is only 8% of our balance sheet. It's not market value, okay? Now, if, you, if you're a corporation that's been in business for, like many large corporations, for 50, 100 years, I mean, it, it wouldn't be out of the ballpark to say you could have a real estate value 10 times what's showing up on your, but even say five times. And again, you're back, to, you're back to 40% from a market value, but that's not what's on any of your financial statements. 
okay? So when people say, well, it's immaterial, it's only 8%. For, it's 8% of what? Expenses or, or assets? So you, number one, you got, a, you got a double impact on your financial statements because they're reflected in different places, okay? But the expense side on the income statement doesn't take into consideration the number of years of what you're showing on your income statement. And the, and the asset side of your balance sheet doesn't show market value. It shows, a, it shows a building at a price you paid 50 years ago for the building. Does AT&T own this building? When did you buy this building, do you know? 1965? There might be a difference in value in this building, huh? I think right now they're doing a sale lease back up. And that, yeah, and that would, yeah, and that would capture, then you would, then you would capture the value in this. You know, you know this whole concept of uh, getting a seat at the table, which I hate. You know this. You know, I want to be at the table with the CFO and the this and that and everything else. So if you take this this position of eight percent, you know, like we just talked about, no, no one's going to pay attention to you, okay? But if you take what Todd just did, and and put it in a way that that uh, the CFO or the CEO understands, you will absolutely get. I don't want to say a seat at the table. I hate that. You Some people don't want a seat at the table. Yeah. It's like, we'll just stand yeah. out in the hall. You yeah. call me if you need me. But you will absolutely <laughs> get recognized. And, but then again, it's, the burden is put back to you then to say, well, just because it's now 10 times that or 50, whatever, 50% or 40% or whatever it is, now you have to train your, your, um, your management that just because it is so big, you know, you're not going to flip this around. You're not going to change it. And to Todd's point before, if you have a significant headcount reduction, if you've got all that lingering, lingering expense that goes with it, but you can't, just can't get rid, of the real, get rid of the real estate just like that either. But again, this is, this is where, when we talk about the communication, where it's our job to make sure that we align with what the business leaders are talking about. And what we're getting at here, going back to this, trying to predictable, consistent earnings, okay? That, you know, we just talked about the totality of your portfolio. Okay, but you take this AT&T building and a sale leaseback that they've owned since 1965. And if you put money into the building, okay, that, that goes back and increases that book value if you put money in, but then it just starts going down again, okay? But the thing is, if you're, if you're doing this, okay, in this, I don't know why they're doing a sale leaseback on here, but it probably has to do with managing predictable and consistent earnings. Because otherwise, why not? You just keep, keep, you know, keep owning it. Okay, but somebody said, "Wait a minute, we got a, we got a lot of cap, we got a lot of untapped value in this building." And even though, yeah, the rent's going to be a whole lot higher than what we pay for expenses now on our income statement, the value is much different. Now, you're the real estate department. Okay, you don't even have to make that decision, even though you know what a great time to sell it. And oh yeah, we can do this. But you may not know if if that big gain is what your company wants, because if you're having this big profitable year, that's the, the worst time in the world to do it. Okay, but if you're having one of these years and you've got a big gain, this is the type of thing that if you just had a meeting with your CFO or finance department once a year and you just said, I want to just give you a list of the top 10% of the real estate that we own that we could sell for a gain, the, high, the top 10% of the highest gains, and the bottom 10% of the biggest losses. Okay, and you just hand that to the CFO, let me tell you, you just, your stock just went up like this. Because he puts in that, that in his drawer of surprise antidotes. Those things that happen in a business that you can't account for. And all of a sudden he says, boy, we just got hit here with unexpected, maybe it's unexpected merger you know, costs. What can I do to offset that? Because I'm trying to manage to predictable, consistent earnings. Oh, 
I could, make, I could do a $100 million gain on selling this building that gets me up around here, okay? Real estate's one of those things that he can have little files in his drawer. So, yes, we talked about the totality of the portfolio and the impact, but just individual assets, both on the gain and the loss side, can be incredibly strategic. And yet, in this building, nobody, I, I, don't, I presume, I'm making a subject here, but nobody's moving out. There's no change in the use of the building. There's no change in the operations. It's, it's all financial statement driven. To manage the predictable, consistent earnings, I, I bet money. Okay? Otherwise, why would you do it? You know, who cares? Just keep doing what you're doing. Okay. So, um, equipment, same thing. 2.2 million less the, the 220,000. We just want to be consistent because, again, we're. We're not focused on just real estate in this presentation. We're focused on the impact to the, whole, the totality of it. If we were just focused on real estate, we'd be doing MPV runs for you. you know? But you can see an MPV run probably doesn't mean anything to a CFO. He's probably going to want to get, he's probably gonna wanna get the, the tax impact, the gap impact, the MPV. Who cares? I don't care about the MPV. You know? I, I want to see straight line rents. You know? Imagine that with straight line rents when you're negotiating a deal. And you're negotiating bumps in the deal and everything else. It's like, who cares? Line of free rent? Who cares? On my financial statement, you could be cash-driven as well. I don't want to underestimate that. But if your financial, if your income statement-driven, you know, who cares? You're going to straight line it. Just tell me what the average is. Give me a straight rent. Give me a rent that goes like this. I don't care. My financial statements are going to be like that. You know? Um, okay. So total property, plant, and equipment, okay, is. Uh, 2655. Um, we don't we don't talk a lot about accrual in the short version. <laughs> uh, we're not going to probably talk about half of what we had in the book, but <laughs> we'll pick up the pace. The um, but the th the thing is like taxes. We owe the taxes from our income statement. We just haven't paid them yet. You don't pay taxes every time you sell your product. You pay them at certain points in the year. So if you haven't paid it yet, it becomes a an accrued expense. Something you owe. That's why it's in your liabilities. Okay, so long-term liabilities that as it relates to this transaction. This is uh, oh yeah, I didn't see that. That should be current there, and this should be long. I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah, let's keep your comments to yourself. I don't know how that did. We just, we just, we, we, yeah, it's creative, it's creative accounting. We just, we just developed this to kind of pop the numbers in like that. And apparently, apparently we went a little fast on throwing it together. Okay, so we come down all the way down here to stockholders' equity and retained earnings, and we're not going to talk a lot about that right now. So um, let's see, I, the, I think I, we may have made another mistake because I, I don't see our lease on here. Where's the, I see our tenant improvements in the equipment. Where's the lease? Is the, is the lease on the balance sheet? Is it on the balance sheet? It's off the balance sheet. Oh, it's off the balance sheet. Oh, that's what on and off balance sheet is. Okay? It's not like, it's not like a real complicated thing. It's not on the balance sheet. That's why a lot of companies like leasing space. 
Because you know what? If you could lease 100% of your space, you won't have any real estate on your balance sheet. And generally, generally, okay, you don't want things on your balance sheet that don't directly relate to your product, okay? Because it just bogs you down. On, because most people consider the balance sheet to be the best representation of your company's financial health, what you own and what you owe. So the thing is, if you can, if you can get things that you have obligations for off your balance sheet, especially if they don't directly relate to like raw materials and, and your product, you want to do that. So generally, if things don't relate to your core business, you don't want them on your balance sheet. Now, there's a lot of other reasons. A manufacturing facility, you could argue that that, that, that relates pretty closely to your product, and, and you oftentimes would want to own that rather than lease that for control purposes and flexibility purposes. So it's like, okay, well, that's, you know, th that's fine that's to have it on here. But if you have sales offices that you just, you know, you're going to test a market or something, why load up your balance sheet with that? Just do a lease. And that's why companies like leasing space because it keeps it off the balance sheet. Yeah, Mariella. Your own real estate will be. This is an operating lease, and that's, what, that's, why, it, that's why we're trying to show a representation of the same 50,000 square feet, what it looks like if you lease it, and then what it looks like if you own it. So why don't, it's, it's 10.15 now. Why don't we take a break now, and then we're going to come back, put your seatbelts on, because we've got some basic concepts done. The questions are all fabulous. You know, but this is a two-day kind of group of attendees in this course. Beginning, a lot of this, since we've been doing this for a long time, um, the, the principles and the theory stay the same, and how we address this and how we um, talk about the course and the time that we have is adjusted based on the audience. So today, we're really going to make an adjustment based on the audience. We basically have 45 minutes left to cover uh, capital leases, dispositions, acquisitions, FAS 13, FAS 146. So what we're going to do is we're going to do a much more condensed version. And again, I think we're going on the route of more theory versus the analytics of it. So um, you know, just as a, uh, as a teaser for the course, I really recommend if you're enjoying this at all or if you just have nothing better to do over a weekend and you want to take a, a two-day class, the class gets much more into the principle. And actually what we do in the class as we're, we spend time digging into these. So we actually calculate these, and we figure out why it's this and why it's not that, and, and then we pull it back up into theory. So there's a big chunk of this that, unfortunately, we're just not going to be able to do. So what we're going to do is we're going to finish up and talk about the difference between the, um, the, the, the operating lease and, uh, and a purchase. We're going to get a little bit into subleasing and deal with some of the, um, the FAS and the GAP um, uh, uh, practices associated with that. Just touch on the capital lease and then touch on the disposition. Um, so again, we're going to focus on the theory. We're going to end with um, you know, probably 10 minutes of, of questions. And again, I think, so you're getting a good taste of, of what the course is like. And um, you know, again, if this is something that you really w want to dig into deeper, I would just recommend going with the two-day. Okay? All right, so now we have 40 minutes to finish the class. So here's the movie version. So just, com just getting back to the impact here. Uh, we finished with the operating lease. Okay, the balance sheet impact. The there's nothing about the lease that goes on the balance sheet, but in this transaction, we had the assets at the end of the year from the equipment and the real estate tenant improvements that reflected this number, and there were no liabilities 
you know, associated with this because we didn't take out any, any loans on this. So what we want to do, and we're going to go through this quickly because we explained all the concepts in this one, but we're going to take a look at the property purchase in the same 50,000 square feet. These assumptions are in your book, um, but we're, instead we're going to buy the building for $6,250,000, okay? Um, again, you depreciate the real estate um, over 39 years for tax purposes, and for this example, that's what we also used for, for our gap purposes, okay? There is some discretion on that and some latitude for your financial statements, not tax. You know, if it's a special purpose building, you might depreciate over 50 years. If it's a second generation suburban building that's 20 years old, you might depreciate it over 25 years. There's some latitude in gap, not on tax. It's always 39. But you cannot depreciate land, so you must always attribute some of the purchase price to land, and you only depreciate the building portion. So in this case, we said 20% was land, which would make this number $5 million for the depreciation purposes. And, you know, if you want to make that note on your sheet to go back and if you're going to look at this later. In this particular case, we put a thousand, a million dollars down on it. We took a loan out for the balance. Don't confuse the loan with the land value. The 20% would be $5 million for the building, depreciable. Oh, I didn't put my power cord on. Could you, could you put the power cord on? When, this is, um, so, here you go. Um, Make that work. Okay, so is there an extra book? We'll do this this way. Um, okay, so you always got to have a backup plan and presentation, you know? Okay, so um, in this case, um, when you buy a building, you don't have rent, okay? You're going to, and, and we, because we took a loan out on it in this case, if you didn't take a loan, then you don't have, you know, you don't have anything, but we're going to have a loan payment and the loan payment is $507,000, but there's an interest portion and a principal portion to that. Uh, we have to pay for all the occup occupancy expenses now, taxes, insurance, as well as janitorial and whatnot. But, but the same, we have the same equipment. We have the same equipment, and then the depreciation number here, that's, that's the, the $5 million depreciated over 39 years, okay? Uh, if you, just so that you're not confused, you may want to add the $3.3 million, the same G&A costs. Everything else is the same, okay? So if you flip then to the income statement, okay, there's nothing that's going to change in revenue. You're just deciding whether you're going to lease the building or buy the building. Okay, but on the expense side, how much do you have in rent? Zero, Zero right? You, you own the building. You don't pay rent, all right? But you do have operating expenses, which are going to be a little bit more. There's 600000 because you, you're paying for the insurance and taxes now as well. Then you get to depreciation, okay? You have a depreciation expense on the real estate of 128. That's the $5 million divided by 39 years. You have the same 220, and by the way, the TIs are, you know, come, came with the purchase price of the building. You have the same 220 for equipment, so you have total depreciation expense of 348. Okay? Operating expenses are just the expenses of, of the business. The three point, I'm sorry, operating interest expense, that's the, that's the interest expense on your loan. 
okay? Um, so then you have your 3.3 million G&A, and you can see that your total operating expenses are 4.7 million. So you have a profit from operations of six, you know, one million six. And the last example was one million five. And we intentionally created these to be close because we're not trying. We don't. The worst thing you could do is walk out of this room and say, "Well, I just took a course and it was, you know, it was, it was much. We had much more profits leasing rather than owning." Do you have a problem? Yeah, here, let me just, is this, is the mic on? Is the mic on? Okay. So, so we've, we've intentionally structured these so that, it, so that the impact here on profits is about the same. That's not the point of this example. The point of this example is what, what's the impact of the financial statement? So using, coming back to the income statement, if you purchase the building, what's the impact? Well, well for rent in the purchase, it's zero. Operating expenses, okay, that's 600. That was a little bit more because we have to pay all of it. But from the income statement standpoint, we, have, we also have depreciation, which the total depreciation, because we totaled it up here as well, is 348. And because we financed it, interest is also on the income statement, okay? So that's 470. Okay, so now this is, so the thing is, even though you don't, have rent, you don't have rent when you buy a building, and we talked about rent, you're only going to find rent on the income statement. It doesn't mean that you don't have an expense component to buying a building too, all right? So if you were income statement driven, meaning your company's focused on profits, and they say, well, I don't know, should we buy or should we lease, there's still not an obvious answer. Because one of the questions is, are we going to finance it or are we going to pay cash? Because remember, there's no cash representation on the income statement. There's no cash representation. So, you know, if you're, if you're earnings driven, buy it for cash. Okay? That's not your call because then you eliminate this 470. You will, you have to have depreciation. You cannot avoid that. Okay? You have to have that. So what you're looking at is, what do, what do these expenses look like versus these? And I'll pick the cheaper between the two. And it may be owning the building or it may be leasing the building. But what you're focused on now is the lesser of these because the, the less the expenses are, the more the profit is. And if your company says the only thing we're concerned about is profit, you know, you may go out and buy everything for cash. You may say from a real estate perspective, if that's what you want, if I buy it for cash, I don't have an interest expense and the depreciation expense. And again, you can say, what do you want to depreciate it over? Now, like David said before, you can't pick and choose. You've got to have a consistent, you got to have a con consistent process for doing it. But you may find that, that that's a lesser expense than the rent that you would pay if you paid, it, if you paid cash for it. Okay? So then we go to the um, balance sheet. Okay, so let me blast through this. And we go to the balance sheet. And again, you had a lot of money going out from a cash perspective, okay? But when you get down to the real estate, okay, now we've got a different number because you're putting, the, now you bought the building, so you've got a different asset amount on your books, not just the TIs, but the whole building, okay? And this number, even though we bought it for 6250 we depreciated 128 okay? Remember, it goes down every year unless you put capital money back into it. But for the historical cost, it goes down. All right, so we're not dealing with the capital A's. We just blast right down here to, 
to mortgage notes payable, well, we took a loan, okay? The loan we took was $5,250,000, but we made a principal payment on that loan of $37,000. So that, you know, just as you would expect that, the remaining obligation at the end of the year is less because we made a principal. But the, here's the thing. When you, a lot of times when people think of a mortgage payment like your house, you think about that, in this case, $507,000, and it's like, where do I put that? You don't put 507 any place. The interest portion goes on the income statement, and the principal paydown actually gets recorded on the cash flow statement, okay? But it's also reflected in the declining obligation here. You don't see the mortgage payment represented any place, not even on the cash flow, because the interest you do on the income statement, okay? So you come down, again, you pay your taxes on this, and you come down to retained earnings, and it's designed to be close. But what we're looking at here now is we, we, we go to the balance sheet on a purchase between the equipment and the, um, the building. We now have assets of 8102, okay? And we have liabilities associated with that, of 52.13, okay? Now, we just talked about, if your company is just solely interested in profits, you might just say, let's buy this thing for cash, and if that does the best, fine. If your company's balance sheet oriented, okay, you come over here, huge difference on your balance sheet by buying that building. Because now you've got big numbers over here that drop on your balance sheet. Okay, so if you're balance sheet oriented, this is not what you'd want to do. And that's what we're trying to convey in the material in this course. You, what is your company oriented toward? Your company may be oriented toward debt, okay? Where it's like, okay, we've taken on a lot of debt because we've acquired companies or whatnot. Our objective is reducing debt. Well, you don't want to be the real estate guy that says, well, I just took a course that says if we put a loan on this building, we can leverage you know, the return that we get. It's like, no, we don't want debt. Get rid of the debt, okay? If you own a building that has debt on it, do a sale lease back. That's a way to pay, get rid of your debt without changing the real estate that you have. It also gets the real estate off the balance sheet, okay? So if, you're, if your company changes between income statement driven and balance sheet driven, which companies do, okay, you can change. If your company was income statement driven and now they're balance sheet driven, fine, do the sale lease back, get rid of this, get rid of that. Okay? It's understanding, okay, how do I align with what the company objectives are? If you're debt-oriented, you know, you want to get rid of the debt. If you're cash-oriented, you want to do, you know, you want to take a look at your cash position. All right? Now, I'm not even going to ask for any questions. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay, no break, you had a break. <laughs> okay. What we want to do is the fact that the, the, even the two-day course is not about the accounting and not even about the income statements. It's about what the ultimate effect is, and we talked about that a little bit. To align it, you've got to understand what, you know, what is driving your executive suite, what's driving your business units, what's driving your finance department, and you want to align with that. How are they measured? How do shareholders look at your company? You know, um, what drives success on Wall Street? You know, is it, is it the earnings? Is it paying down debt? Is it your cash position? And by the way, cash is like a nightmare for your senior executives, okay? Because in so many companies are so flush with cash right now. 
And the problem is, you know, your stockholders expect what kind of return? What do you expect when you invest in a company? You know, 5%, 20%? What do you, what do you expect? Throw out a number. For, what do you expect the return on your portfolios to do every year? At least 10, right? You'd like it to be more like 20. And depending on the company, you might expect 50, okay? So what, is, what kind of return does cash make? You know, two, three, doesn't make much. So if you're a company that's sitting on $5 billion in cash, that's a problem for most managements. Because your shareholders are going, wait a minute, I'm, I'm expecting 20% return. You're sitting on $5 billion making 2% return. Can't you think of something to do with it? You know, can't you, you know, and some companies have 20, 30, 40 billion in cash. You know, if nothing else, buy your stock, which a lot of companies are doing. Buy a competitor. Invest it back in the business. Don't have the cash sitting around. But a lot of companies, a lot of your companies have a lot of cash sitting around. And also, if you have a lot of cash sitting around, then companies are looking to do acquisitions. Right? Yeah, you're. A company without a lot of debt. So, so we're. Where we talked about, well, you know, the balance sheet aspect of real estate. And you say, well, generally, if it's not a part of your core business, you generally want it off your balance sheet. Well, you know what? If you're a company sitting on a bunch of cash, okay, a lot of companies say, well, you know what? Real estate's generally 8 9% return if I got a lot of cash. And the markets are, why don't I just buy the buildings? A lot of companies will do that because you can always sell them. You can always do a sale lease back. Okay, again, what, how do you align with your company? What are the issues that your company's dealing with? And then how do you, I mean, if you've got a lot of cash in there, and you, can, and you don't have to ask the questions. Tap into your analyst call on a quarterly basis. They'll ask the questions of their concern. If you've got too much cash, you'll hear it coming up. And again, you know, on your list of things that you just might want to point out to people, it's like, look, we could be buying these buildings for cash. Okay? Um, and then understand your portfolio, what it looks like, and be able to communicate that to the people in, the, to, in, in a relative way to them. Okay? We talked about this, well, we haven't talked about this, financial ratios. These are the performance measures of your company. And on the first slide, we had that alphabet soup that rolled across. You should be aware of what those drivers are for your company, okay? And, and where the numbers come from. And, and we're going to just go through this pretty quickly. But clearly, a CEO, if it's, it's predictable, consistent earnings, earnings per share is going to be a pretty important number to him. He's going to want to know, are we, are we on target for what we expect or any kind of guidance that we may have implied to the market about if we're making money, if we're not, and what the, what the magnitude of that is. For the CFO, you know, debt equity ratio could be very important to your company. Return on assets. If you're in a business that has that has a lot of assets deployed in the, in certainly manufacturing or whatnot. The, the return portion of this comes from the income statement. That's how do your profits relate to the amount of assets that you have. Return on asset numbers are usually mid-single digit type numbers, three, four, five percent, okay? But if you're a company that has a three percent return on assets, and another, if you're General Motors and you have a 3% return on assets and Toyota has a 7% return on assets, General Motors is, a, is operating much more efficiently. They're getting much more profit out of the, the money they got tied up in their assets that General Motors is. So if General Motors has to change that from the real estate department, what contribution could you make? Right. So how would you? So if you can't, if you can't change revenues, yeah. If you got a bunch of real estate that you own, 
That's what you could, you could say, look, at if, if we're underwater, our return on assets, I, I hear that we're getting hammered on that. We, have, we, you know, we own Ren Center as our corporate headquarters. Who cares? Why do you need to open your corporate headquarters? Do a sale leaseback, okay, just like AT&T is doing on this building. Without impacting, without impacting revenues, which, you know, which it, it, you know, have an impact on this, you can't impact revenues, but if you can drop this number, you'll, improve, you'll help to improve this ratio, okay? So we all know what you use ratios for to compare. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And that's why every company is different. And they'll use, they'll, instead of return on assets, they'll use return on net assets, RONA. You know, you'll use, and all these other, and your company will have, you know, these are just generic that are going to affect all companies, but your company will have very specific, maybe even customized ratios that they measure yourself quarter to quarter or against competition or with the industry, all the reasons that, same thing that we use ratios for in real estate, cost per square foot, number of people per square foot, parking per person, you know, per, per square foot, you know, whatever. We use real, financial ratios are used the same way, okay? So the calculations of those are in the book, uh, how you get those. We won't spend the time going through those now. And we spend quite a bit more time on the impacts of doing different transactions. And, and we would take this to the next level and saying, okay, how did, what's the difference in return on assets or earnings per share in the course between doing the deals different? So all of a sudden, you're getting, you're getting a, a flavor of, okay, where does it go? What do the statements do? How does, it, how does it impact versus a lease, versus a purchase, versus profits, versus debt, versus all this kind of stuff, all right? And that's, that's all in your books. But this is, we didn't want to skip over this, although we're going to do it pretty fast, because a capital lease, a capital lease is derived specifically from FAS 13, okay? Um, financial, the Financial Accounting Standards Board, okay, uh, was basically a committee of the SEC that came into effect in 1973. Uh, Generally accepted accounting principles are just that. These are all the different people that have an input to this, and they change all the time. And when they make a rule, you know, being the creative, uh, you know, uh, you know, um, uh, accountants in terms of how they regiment themselves, they just they just number the rules. So the first the first rule that they came up with is financial accounting statement one. Okay, right now we're up to about. 154, okay, because things change over time, um, and they need to clarify that. And the purpose for having this, this, these rules is so that when you pick up financial statements from a company and, and want to compare it or whether, determine whether you want to invest in it, there's consistency. So everybody's counting revenue the same. So that one company, if they get TI landlords from the TI dollars from the landlord, if they count that as revenue but another company doesn't, it's like, well, okay, now I'm, now I'm confused on how you're really doing. We just have to have it be consistent, and that's the purpose of these. But for real estate, uh, if, you, if there's only one financial accounting statement that, that you know, it should be FAS 13 because this is, the one, this is the one that could get you truly into the most trouble, Okay. And what it is, there's four criteria for FAS 13 that determine if 
a lease that you're doing is a capital lease versus an operating lease. But FAS 13 determines if it's a capital lease. There's four criteria. If the, if the lease you're negotiating meets any one of these four criteria, it's a capital lease. And once we go through the criteria, we'll show you the impact or the difference between a capital and operating lease. The first criteria is if, if the lease, oh, if it meets, <laughs> can't read that. If there's an automatic transfer of ownership. In other words, if you're doing a lease document that says lease the space for 10 years and at the end of 10 years you own it. Okay? And by the way, FAS 13 applies to any asset. So this would apply to a copy machine just like an office lease. If you, if you lease a copy machine for five years and at the end you own it, okay, it's a capital lease. If you lease an office building for 10 years and at the end the guy gives you title to the building, okay, that would qualify as a capital lease. If there's a bargain purchase price, Negotiate into the deal. You will not do this by accident. This is not 90% of fair market value. This is like 50% of fair market value. Okay? And there may be instances, and we talk about some examples of that in the longer course, where you might do something like that. You don't want to put the money out now, but if whatever your product hits, you want to be able to buy the building. And so you recognize you're paying a big premium now, and you want to be able to buy the building and get some of that money back. Okay? Um, then, then if there's a bargain purchase, you must record it as a capital lease. If the lease term exceeds 75% of the remaining useful life, in other words, if you go into that 25-year-old suburban office building and you do a 20-year lease on it, somebody might say, you know what, that's kind of like most, probably most of the rest of the useful life of this stick and stucco you know, building. Okay? So, so therefore, your lease is, at the end of your lease, there's not much value left in the building is what it's getting at. And you, you might want to be sensitive to this one on longer-term leases, but the one that usually gets people, the one that most people trip up on, is the fourth. That if the present value of the lease payments is 90% of the fair market value of the property at the inception of the lease, you must record it as a capital lease. And what this is getting to is really like a purchase, well, not, now this is purchase financing up here, but this is saying that your lease document itself is, you know, represents the, the, the economic value of the building. And it doesn't have to be the whole building. This can be on a prorated basis. This could be the bank branch you know, in, in the bottom of a million square foot building if it's a 30-year bank branch because it would be essentially prorated to your part of the space. Okay? And the way that you determine this is you take the minimum lease payments for that Fixed period of the lease term. Okay, so it doesn't, options don't count. This is net rent only. Not necessarily. And this is, that's a question, really it's a question for your auditor because I've been involved in a situation where that, that be, how we structured the deal became an issue. And, and it, quite frankly, I literally had two different opinions from two audit firms, okay? But, but it's, so the, the safest way to look at this is it's whatever your fixed payment is. So if it's a full-service gross rent, okay, consider it's the full-service gross because that's your fixed payment. If you have a net rent, consider it that. But again, in, in, in communicating with your finance department, that's it, it, when you say, I've got, I've got a concern. Absolutely. You're exactly right on that. And so if you want to, you know, in talking to your finance department, if you say, 
you know, I, I don't know, you know, what do we calculate for FAS 13 purposes, you know, regarding the fixed portion of the rent? You know, that's enough information for them to know what you're talking about, and they're going to get back to you on that. So you can get into a situation where you, a lot of times, you know, we don't necessarily write all the leases. A lot of times we inherit leases. And so as we go through our own internal audit of our portfolio, which I recommend everybody does ourselves, if we have this and we inherit a lease where the previous head of real estate was in a position where they had no cash and they threw everything into it and they entered into a long-term lease, this is probably going to happen. Right. And so um, what you do is you take your lease payments. And options don't count. But, for example, if you have a termination right, 20-year deal, 20-year lease with a termination at 10, your fixed payment is not just your, your rent, but it includes that termination payment because the only way that, that you could get out at 10 years would be to pay that. Maybe it's a million bucks. So you include that as the fixed payment. And you discount it back at your firm's incremental borrowing rate. Okay? Another number you'd have to get from your finance department. So whatever they can borrow at? Yeah, whatever your firm's incremental borrowing rate is. So what their bond rate might be? Could be. It's going to be a four or five, six percent number for the for the companies in this room. You ask you ask the finance company what what the rate what the what rate to use. Yeah. But again, to Todd's point, it's it's at the inception of the lease, and the numbers change, so it's not what it is today. Right. It's what it was when you entered into the lease. Yeah, Mark. Let me very too quickly. Minimum lease payments. So you say, I mean, lease. Let's say that increases every year by three percent. You get your three percent bumps. What are you referring to? Well, for, for the purposes of for accounting purposes, if you've got a CPI, for example, you, you would use today's CPI and escalate your rent at that. So you, okay, so it's not minimum, it's not the lowest of all your lease payments. You're digging the, the incomes for the rental stream. Right. If you have a minimum and a max that the increase would be, it would be the minimum increase. Increase, not payment increase. It's a difference. The reason I'm asking you say minimum lease payments. First year you're paying hundred thousand dollars, second year you're paying Oh no, it's for the whole term, yeah. Yeah. So if it's an escalating rent, yeah, you, you, you do the minimum lease for the whole term. Yeah. You only do the 10 years because that's the fixed term, but you've got to include that termination penalty. Okay? Yeah. This is independent of any PIs, independent of any investments. Did you separate from your lease? If you put in another half a million dollars after you enter into your lease agreement, yeah, that's, that's separate from this. Separate. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, the, the, the point is, if you're doing a 15-year lease, you better be running this test. Well, actually, no matter, what site, no matter what term lease you do, you should do this test. And in your lease file, you should have a capital lease test on every single lease you do because 90% of the leases, it's not going to happen. But again, if you ever get audited, which is really uncomfortable, uh, and you don't, and you have capital lease tests for some and not for others. You know, we talked about consistency, so you know, no surprises. You got to show consistency, and it's not going to. I mean, it's not going to happen. So, as part of when you do your lease analysis, or when you have, um, uh, uh, you know, your partners do a lease analysis, just do the quick test. It's really simple to do, and as long as you have it in there, then you're safe. Yeah, for the for the Boeing company, we do a FAS 13 test on every single lease. You know, we just did a. 300-square-foot executive suite in Beijing, and we had to do a FAS 13 test on that. Every single one, and, and Boeing audits quarterly. So, okay. I thought you'd only be looking at the single-tenant-type building. No. At least that scenario. No. It's a multi-tenant 
Yep. And you're only, let's say, 1% of that building. Yep. So you've got to then come up with what you believe the fair market value of this building yep. is at that point in time. Yep. Boy, that is like really a huge you have one. Hired, yep. You have to hire an auditor to do that? No. Or an MIA appraisal or something? No, you don't. No, you can do, you can. You have to have comps. Yeah, I mean, you have to have comps because remember, this is an this is an accounting test, not like a not like an investment decision. Okay, it's an accounting test, so it has to pass an auditor. Okay, so if you can show that okay, here's some comparable lease transactions and here's some comparable sale transactions and we are within that range, that'll pass. Okay, because the likelihood of you actually getting audited by an external source if you have a consistent process and methodology this is very minimal, right? As long as you have the stuff in the file, trust me, the, you know, because you get into this thing we didn't even talk about it today, is materiality. And we can't. So, um, <laughs> moving forward with the... I'm going to talk about materiality. <laughs> <for 15 laughs> moving forward with the movie, if you meet any one of those criteria, okay, you must record this lease on your financial statements like you bought the building. We're not, now you did a 15-year lease. We're not talking up here anymore. We're talking down here, okay? You must record it like you own, like you bought the building, okay? Or the space, correct? Or, yeah, or the space, that piece of space. So what that means is you're going to have an asset on your balance sheet. You're, you're going to have a loan, a liability on your balance sheet, but you will, ne you will never have title to this, and you did, in fact did not take out a loan for this, but you've got to record a loan. You must record principal and interest payments, not rent. So you're down here on the interest, okay? Amortized over the term or amortized over the useful For which? Uh, for for a capital, capital lease. For, for, the, when it is a capital lease, you've got to add the payments. You're talking about depreciation or amortization? I'm going to show you amortization in a minute. But for depreciation, now you're not talking about the same criteria before of 39 years for tax and this discretionary depreciation you have for buying a building. Now your depreciation schedule is your lease term. Okay, So if you do a 15-year lease that has, um, uh, you know, that you're now depreciating, okay, is that depreciation number going to be higher or lower than if you were depreciating over 39 years? It's going to be a lot higher, right? It's going to be over twice as high because 15, you know, 30. If you were doing 20, it'd be about half. You know, what is that going to do to your profits? That's going to that's going to slam your profits if this depreciation number here doubles, you know, to 700 to 700 rather than 350. You, know, you just slammed your profits, and yet you don't even own the building. And if you're balance sheet sensitive and you drop an asset on when you don't even own it, okay, it's not that it's it's not that you wouldn't do them or that you don't even have them, okay? But, but it's a big impact if you get into a capital lease, okay? And it's, again, it's substance over form, which is a fundamental accounting principle, meaning that, that if you've got a situation with an automatic transfer of ownership or bargain purchase price, they're saying effectively the substance of that is that you're buying the building. And those are the rules that they set up for buying it. But this is how... Um, this is how you, you structure that. You're, and by the way, the document looks just like any other lease that you would do. In fact, the only, the only difference in the whole document might be just the term. All the other terms of the document may be the same. Let's say you have a flat rent. Okay? 
and you just go from a 15-year term to a 20-year term. Boom, it pops the capital lease. And that's the only difference. It's the only thing you'd see different. It's not like it says capital lease at the top of it. It's just a lease. So the landlord, in this case, going back, let's take an example where we do a 20-year deal. We have $10,000 a month payment. And let's just say our incremental borrowing rate was 10%. So we do a present value analysis on that and determine that the present value of that lease is a million dollars. Let's say it was a single tenant building because it'll be you know, easier here. But, and, and you say, well, wait, the, the building's worth a million dollars. So this is over 90%. Now I have to record this as a capital lease like I own the building. The landlord gets a rent payment at 10000 a month. That's the cash part of the transaction. But not on your books, not on your financial statements. What you're recording is you're recording um, the interest on your books, okay? And you're recording the depreciation on your income statement, okay? You're also putting on your balance sheet the million dollars. And for the loan purposes, you have to, you have to put it on your balance sheet as though you 100% finance this internally, okay? This is all in your book, so we're going through pretty quick on this. So the impact is the revenue. There's no change to your revenue, but on the expense side, for the capital lease, you have an expense now. The 93 comes from your interest, okay? The asset depreciation, the 51, came from, uh, do I have the depreciation up here? No, but that's, that's that, you know, the, the million dollars divided by uh, 20 years, in this case, that's the 51. So your total expenses on your lease, on your income statement, because expenses are income statement, is 145. And yet the lease itself, the expenses, the rent expenses would have only been 120. Okay? So effectively, you've just, you've hit your, pro your profit line by that amount of money. You're still paying the landlord the $10,000. On your balance sheet, okay, and you don't own this building, you're never going to own this. Well, of course, if it's an automatic transfer, you will, or if there's a bargain purchase, you might. But you have to record a million-dollar asset on your balance sheet, less the depreciation at the end of the year. And for liabilities, you've got to record a million-dollar loan on your balance sheet, okay, less your, the, the principal payment that you made at the end of the year. Yes. So obviously, we, will, we all want to stay away from the capital lease. But how often have you seen a multi-tenant building trigger for your tenant a capital lease? Oh, the, the difference between multi and single makes no difference. It would trigger the exact same number. Because you're only looking at that. It's, it's, it's yeah, very common. It's the same thing because you're only looking at that portion of the space. Right, on a pro rata basis. But yeah. How often, has, how often do you see that in a multi-tenant building where you trip it? As often as a single-tenant building. Because usually, usually it's a matter of somebody either understanding this or not. If they don't, if they're not, you're not going to, you're not, you're not going to, you're not going to understand this for single tenant buildings and miss it for multi tenant buildings. If you understand it, you're going to understand it regardless of the lease. No, I get that, but I'm saying, how often in your practice? Yeah. Well, um, uh, yeah, the how, how often is a little bit of a, is a misnomer because, because it goes with how often are you doing 15, 20-year leases. And so as a percent of a person's portfolio, that's a small amount. How many times in a room like this is this a surprise to people? Um, 
you know, like every time. And like half the people go, oh, we don't have any capital leases. And we do the course, and we ask them to bring their financial statements. And you, you do record financial statement, capital leases in the back. You, half the room is sitting there going, I had no idea. So here's you know, the, we've, got, we've got hundreds of millions of dollars of capital leases, and I had no idea. So here's the thing. People freak out about this. And what you do, you go back to your portfolio, and you look at, not, if you have a big portfolio or a small portfolio, take a look at those that are big leases, right, have a lot of space, have a lot of dollars attached to it, and have long lease terms, okay? Focus on those first. That's materiality. <laughs> so you talk about, you know, okay, well, this, is, we're at this is relevant. Look at those top tier first. And then if you think you have a problem based on that four test, those four tests, and the, the last one is the one that usually hits the most, that's when you walk it over to your treasurer's office. Hey. Okay. Now, there's a corollary to all of this, which David is going to address. Okay. So in the next three minutes, we're going to talk about, <laughs> uh, let's skip ahead here. Pass the picture of Todd on the front to the If he would have submitted something, his picture would have been in there, too. Doesn't hold a candle. He's a busy, busy man. Okay, so uh, <laughs> the exit of, dis, of disposal activities. We talked about before dispositions, right, and, and the fact that I was uh, misquoted in the Chicago Tribune on something that we're doing right now. So on a sublease scenario, our business model has changed quite a bit as a result of some uh, acquisitions that we made and some long-term leases that we um, entered into when we went public, um, we have more space than we, our space is not suited to run efficiently based on the number of people that, ha that we have and the amount of business that we have. Or, excuse me, the amount of people that we have and how we do the business. So, what we're taking a look at is we went to our uh, CFO after going through a pretty extensive study looking at utilization and space capacity and headcount and mobile workers and everything else, and we said, here's our business case. We think we have an opportunity to reduce our real estate expenses by this, by doing the, going through these three or four activities. And again, the first thing we did was, was we set context. So try to get an understanding of how big the portfolio is, how much, how, what's the cost here, how much of that is inefficient spend due to poor utilization, and said, so we got the, okay, that's not good. And then how do we take that and, and make some change? And we take some change by going through this whole restructuring initiative on the sublease. Todd talked about it earlier. You know, just because you have this room right here with all these vacant seats in here, you're thinking, well, I'm the real estate guy. Should I sublease this space? It doesn't look like it's really efficiently used. What's the benefit? Why would we do that? Right? I mean, clearly from, from everything that we know, you've got you know, X number of chairs. So we have a better utilization of the space. We can probably pack another 10 to 15 people in here and continue to work. But what are we going to do? I mean, if the market is such that this, this space is pretty cheap compared to market, we're not going to save any money. We may not want to take any type of charges right now if we've got 10 years left on this space right here. So would we do it? Again, you've got to think about this stuff. Just because we came up with this whole great plan and reduced um, uh, uh, vacancy cost by 30%, it may not be the right time to do it. So to Todd's example, that's something that you can put on a piece of paper of CFO ideas to do. But just one caution on that, if you do give the CFO that piece of paper and they will put it right in that drawer, you know, right where the cigarettes are and the gum and everything else, make sure that you update that. Okay? Because if you do it at the beginning of the year and that CFO you know, gets into trouble or there's an unexpected uh, acquisition or there's an acquisition and there's some unexpected activity in there, they pull that thing out and it's two years old, everything may change. Okay? It's a great thing to do and I've actually done that, but you've got to make sure that you keep on doing it. We just update it on a quarterly basis. So again, 
what we talked about before, recognize when entity ceases using. Again, in accounting, it's when bad news today. So if you have bad news, you have to take account, you have to account for it today. The fair value of remaining lease rentals reduced by estimated sublease rentals, expense unrealized subrent annually. So basically what this is, is if you've got a space, if this space is 10,000 feet, okay, you've got five years left on a 10-year lease, and this is $10 a foot, okay? And we think that we can, <laughs> and the market rent is $8 a foot, okay? Then we want to sublease the space. Just get rid of 146. Okay, so we've got our rent is $20 a foot, uh, $30 a foot, okay? Market, we think we can sublease the space for $20 a foot. The amount that we write down is this. Right? Okay. Now, the difference is, though, in addition to the rent, what else do we have to write down? We talked about this before. We have depreciation. What else? Expense. So what's included in the expense? Broker's commissions. Now, what you can write down and what you can't write down are, are, are interesting. The space that you have, so if we want to take this space, and let's say we want to take all of these three tables and move you back there, and we want to sublease this space, okay? And we need to put up a, a demising wall, okay? The cost of putting up that wall, we can put into the expenses, okay? But the cost of rearranging these desks or adding more lights in here, we can't, okay? That's important to know because when you're providing all the data to your accounting people to put into the restructuring reserves, Again, it's a cost of anything that you do to improve the space, or to, excuse me, to, to uh, separate the space. But to improve this space or to improve that space, you can't write that down. Moving costs, you can't write down. Okay? If you have to improve the other space as part of your deal for the sublease, can you do it? Nope. So you'd rather them take it as is? Yep. Well, it depends. It depends. So, for example, when Todd was talking about, you know, you can't, uh, income statement balance sheet driven, what are you? So my company, we have a lot of cash. We, did, um, we went public, raised a lot of money, made some acquisitions. We still have a lot of cash. So our CFO tends to look at things on a cash basis. He still wants us to do analysis on an after-tax basis, and he's very sensitive to the balance sheet. But we have cash. And what Todd was talking about before is that our investors don't want us to hold the cash. They want us to buy other companies, okay? They're not as keen on us buying buildings. But one of the things that we're looking at when we're looking at our disposition strategies, if we've got $30 in rent, $30 cash rent, the sublease rent is 22. We talked about straight lining at 25, okay? So we're gonna try and go ahead and sublease in this situation. But because we have cash, another scenario that we're looking at is just buying it out, okay? Because the issue on this is if we've got cash today and we know that by taking this expense off of the corporate, uh, off of the, uh, the businesses. Uh, P&Ls, that their earnings are going to be better and their revenue is going to go up higher and their margins are going to be higher because we're taking this right down today, we may just want to pay cash for this. Now, not all companies can do that, right? But it's an understanding of what your company has right now and what the position that we're in. Okay? So we talked about this before, this deficiency right down here. Okay? It's a great idea to model this or to have your partners work with you on modeling this and then take this to the finance group before you take it to a CFO. Just because market conditions show that there's an opportunity here doesn't necessarily mean it's something we ought to do. Okay? We're actually, we have a number of situations where we have in different parts of the world a pretty, different, um, pretty significant variance in rent because we've entered, we have some long-term leases outside of the U.S. 
and where the market is today, London is a great example. London is one of the highest uh, rental rate, um, highest market rates right now in the world. And we've got leases that we've been into for 20 years. Okay? So if we want to take a look at maybe getting out of that space, but then the alternative is, well, where are you going to move? Right? So then you look at, well, if the market rate is at 90, 90 pounds and you're at 50 pounds, you know, you're really going to have to shrink the space to accommodate that. So again, I mean, it's all about the timing and about understanding what the business wants to do. And again, if you're taking smaller space, so if I push all of you guys back there, and I think I'm a hero now because I've just reduced the space by 30%, but you guys want to grow and end into here. And to Todd's point before, once you um, write down this space, you put up that brick wall, you can't come back here. Okay? Because every quarter, until that space is subleased, until it's off of the books, you have to, you have to um, uh, make an adjustment in your, um, if you come back and enter into the space, you're going to need to make an adjustment into your estimates. Okay, difference here between the capital lease and, and the um, operating lease, we talked about before, remember Todd talked about depreciation, it's, this is just an asset, so whether it's a property, a building, excuse me, whether it's a building, an airplane, or whatever it may be, okay? So we've got here the sublease rent, nothing new compared to what the um, cash, rent uh, cash rent is and our gap rent here. Subleasing um, on a capital lease. So if you have a capital lease, okay, and we sublease a portion of that space, does it stay a capital lease or does it flip to an operating lease? So you think I've got a, I've got a space in, in the, at the AT&T building in Chicago. And we found out, because we took this course, we went back and talked to our finance people, that this is actually a capital lease. Okay? But the good news is we've subleased 40% of this. Does this change how this is treated on the books at all? As if it's still 90% of the value of it. Nope. Still a capital lease. So someone said, a cap why would you want to do a capital lease or capital lease is bad? It's not necessarily true. Some companies still want to do capital leases. Why would you want to do a capital lease rather than an operating lease? Well, it happens to your payments. So Todd had this up before, but when you have a capital lease versus an operating lease, you can actually structure the lease and sometimes your, your lease payments. Remember Todd said, remember over here, that whatever gets paid to the landlord, right? It doesn't matter. They don't care if it's a capital lease or an operating lease. Okay, we, were, we went through a situation before where we actually wanted to enter into a capital lease rather than an operating lease. Because our capital lease, actually, we had the ability to write off. We had depreciation that we didn't have in an operating lease. And our net number was actually lower than it would be on an operating lease. So we wanted to go with a capital lease. And, and you've got depreciation. Don't your, your expenses go down over time on the capital lease so it would show more favorable? Yeah. If you go back to the last slide, the reason that this is, what this line here is representing is, is the combination of the fact that depreciation, okay, is a straight line number. So you'll have the depreciation, but your interest on an amortization schedule starts high and then goes lower. So this is, there's a, there's a little bit of license taking here combining kind of a balance sheet and income statement impact, but the fact is, to exactly to your point, over time, your, your, obli your obligation, what's on your books for a capital lease, declines. So if you're the new person in the real estate department 
who gets to do all the subleases for the space, and all of a sudden they drop these subleases on you, and you look, and one lease is like yellowed paper and a little crinkly and everything else, and you kind of look and you go, gosh, we've been in this space a long time. It's like 20 years. In your mind, you might be thinking, I wonder if this is an operating or capital lease, because it's a very different treatment here. And where you might have taken a write down in an operating lease because it would have been you would have your rent that you would subrent rent would have been less than what you were paying. If it's a capital lease and your book value toward the end is less than where your rent is, you actually have a gain in it because it's treated different on your financial statements. Okay, so that twenty-two dollar sublet rent that you got here is actually higher than what you have it on your financial statements for. So if We've exceeded our time by five minutes. So, if there any questions, anything you want to add? You want to talk about materiality some more? <laughs> so, just I, I just want to do a quick closing. I'm sure Todd wants to as well. So, I'll, I'll make mine quicker. But, but again, so what we talked here, we did a really high-level, broad brush of a lot of very intense subjects and things that we deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. Again, the two-two-day class that we do goes into this in a lot more detail. We really get into it a lot. And then we get into it and then we pull it back out. Because this class really, what Todd said before, this is not an accounting class. This is not a numbers class. This is about theory and it's about principle. Okay? So at the end of the two days, we have a lot of people walk out with a feeling like they just went through like this major, um, what would you call it? Just this, this they, at different points, we all say that everyone has this aha moment. Okay? Because they get into it and they start to freak out when Todd starts to talk really, really fast like he was just doing a while ago. But he usually does it for about two hours. Okay? And we break up into the table groups and we go through these exercises and we actually do these ourselves. But it's about coming up and understanding the theories. So every time that people leave this course, there's things that they go back and they do right away. Okay? So again, the, thing that, the takeaway that I always take from this and the thing that always freaks me out when I do this is a capital lease test. Okay? You want to stay away from your auditors. Okay? You don't, you don't, you know, as much as you want to spend time with the CFO, you don't want to do it that much. And the meetings that you have with them, you want to make like within five minutes. Okay? You know, sometimes we could actually do this and have time left over and get through it. But I mean, in this room, I mean, excellent questions, and, and a lot of people are grasping it. And for good or for bad, you're you're grasping it. So we we didn't get through all the material. Uh, the Tyco example in there it shows you that, you know, sometimes just reading your CEO letter to shareholders can give you an indication of whether your company's income statement oriented or balance sheet oriented. And we've got Tyco examples in there. They cover a f several years, and you can take a look at that. And even the graphs are a representation of what that orientation of your company is and how it can change. Um, we, we, there's a little bit of SOX information in there. Um, and in fact, the, the biggest issue with SOX that everybody's heard about is, is SOX 404 and compliance with that. Well, the, the entire 404 section of SOX is represented you know, is copied in there for you, and that's the problem. The, it, Congress wrote it. It's bad enough when accountants write stuff, but when you have congressmen writing stuff, you know, it's even worse, and that's what causes people the problem. It's so vague. It's like, what, what do you mean? To what level of detail do we need to do this? Okay? And then, uh, and then at the very end of it is really, when we, we talked about financial accounting statements, but if you never take another finance course at all, we've listed in there, the ones that, that you, you should know, you should be, at least be familiar with. Um, and maybe you've got a buddy in the finance department where you could even uh, talk to him about what those are. But just like we said, everybody needs to know FAS 13, 66, 98, 144, and 146 are all important as well. But FAS 13 is the biggest. 
You know, it's, it's, it, this is FAS 13. It's a large book, but you know you're in trouble when they give you a CD in the back. So there's a, there's a breakout of the things in FAS 13 that talk about what we've talked about, straight lining rents, occupancy, TI, all that's in FAS 13. The other ones are little pamphlets, and you can get them all at FASB.gov as well. So um, we're sorry we didn't get through it, but it was worth spending the time on the questions that you had. And there's a two-day course that you're, I mean, we get nothing out of it, except we have to go and spend our time doing it. But we enjoy that, and we hope to see you there for those that haven't taken it already. That's it. That's it. We're done. <laughs>